Welcome to episode two of The Weekly Scroll. Today, we will be going over Troika, which is a wild and wacky tabletop RPG. Um, it is described as a complete science fiction fantasy RPG full of critically acclaimed writing, built-in wonder, and room for everyone at the table to go wild. So, this should be interesting. We'll see how this goes. I have read through this book um, a little bit. A little bit but what I want to do here on the weekly scroll is whether it takes an episode or two is to pull up the the PDF of the book as long as there's a PDF of the book and really dig through it page by page cover to cover kind of like what we did with last week with uh, Merkborg and Jason but kind of a little bit more in-depth because we already have characters made in Merkborg we've been campaigning in Merkborg so it was a little bit different but when it's games that we haven't played or haven't done anything with um, I really want to dig through the book as much as possible, create a character, look at some scenarios, look at all the roll tables, do all of those things. Um, so that's what we're going to do with Troika. So we'll see if we get through all of that today. And if we do not, then we will finish it up next week. But we're going to do today like we're going to do most days, and we are going to kickstart the stream. So we're going to go over a little bit of Kickstarter, things that um, I'm currently backing, things that look interesting, things that are on the horizon. So we will see um, what is going on with that. This week, I think I only backed one new project. If I look at um, what's a little bit different, yes. So this week, the only thing I backed was the Mag of Holding. And it, it's 5e, and um, I'm I'm really personally moving away from 5e with a lot of content and stuff. I think the um, evil campaign we run over on the Adventure Archive um, will be the last 5e campaign I run for probably a while. So the Mag of Holding. One of the reasons I decided to back this, and I even backed it at a physical level. We'll see if I just drop back down to PDF. Um, is just because I'm a fucking 36-year-old edgelord who likes dark evil shit. And this, apparently this is like something that's, this is the third mag of holding, the others being the Frozen Wastelands and um, Pirates and Seafaring. But uh, this one is Gothic Horror. It looks interesting. There's a lot of stuff going on with it. There are new items. There are new encounters. There are evil creatures. There are, are classes and subclasses involved. So the Demonifier. Spirits of Nine Hells are born without shape or form, wandering as amorphous spirits across the inhospitable landscapes until summoned or sent to the other planes on behalf of their fiendish masters. Twisted subclasses, Pact of the Aberration, um, new feats, uh, magic items... So a lot of fun, dark stuff. And the cool thing about a lot of things like this is I'm always going to do dark stuff. Um, so even if it is 4 or 5e, um, it can still be used as inspiration for other games or one shots or things like that. So I thought this looked really interesting. I'm going to check it out. As I said, right now it's 25. The issue is that it is it's from the Isles. It's in the UK. 
So not only is it more expensive because of the conversion to USD right now, which is terrible, but it will be shipping too. So there's a good chance that I will drop down to PDF for this, but I do always like to have physical copies of things as much as possible. I personally find it easier to read. Um, so that is the only thing I back this week. But coming up, um, I think we might have talked about this last week as far as saved projects. I did not end up backing Stars Without Numbers. I did not end up backing Blackbirds. I looked into this Vihander system. Um, maybe I'll snag it as an R, as a PDF sometime soon. But Spyhander uh, is it, it's in the OSR realm, um, and Blackbirds is for the Spyhander game. I'm sorry, that's what I'm looking at now. It's a game called it's a it's it's um, a Kickstarter called Blackbirds. It looks amazing. The setting looks amazing, but I don't have Spyhander. You need Spyhander to run it, and Spyhander looks like a rules medium game which is not really what I'm into right now. So this will always be out there in the future. Um, it definitely met its funding goal. So so we will not have um, any issues funding in the future if we want to start looking at a game like Spyhander. But again, it is more of a rules medium game. Um, so I, um, I decided to stay away from that. It did get backed at $121,000. So if you want to check out the Blackbirds RPG, I'm sure there's late pledges and things you can look at. But I chose not to because, and another a number of projects that look interesting, if it's systems I don't have and systems I don't plan on imminently running, I'm going to stop backing a lot of things on Kickstarter. Um, I think last time we talked about uh, the Tomb Punk game, Nightfell. I don't have Tomb Punk. Um, and in order to get Nightfell, unfortunately with me myself, what I would want to do is um, then buy all things Tomb Punk, um, and I need to stop doing that. So that's what I'm doing. So if I'm not going to imminently run it and I need an entire new system to do it, I'm going to stop backing it. So we did not back Blackbirds this week. There is some other interesting things coming up, though. I thought I had, I thought I had saved it to be. Maybe it's not even a project yet, so it won't be in my. Um, in my stuff but let me bring up something um coming up and i'll probably talk about this more and more as we move forward i might have talked about this previously as well that has been brought up over on um our discord channel and that is this right here hopefully the music let's just not have the music playing just in case it's not copyright free but this is something i am um, incredibly excited for for those that are uh, not that are listening in podcast for it is the um, uh, box set of Mothership apparently Mothership has been a uh, in beta this entire time published put out there you know games being written games being written even by the people that put the game out but supposedly um, has been in beta this entire time. So the official game, the official box set, everything will be dropping for Mothership. Uh, the Kickstarter will be releasing on November 2nd, 2021. I am very excited for it. I, I have the current Mothership game. I have a lot of Mothership um, zines already and adventures. I think I've got five or six already like uh gosh they're 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 right there you can uh, i can jump to you sometime but um box set coming out i'm sure there's gonna be some adventures associated with it it's gonna be a slightly updated set of rules i don't think it's gonna be too much difference so most of the adventures should still be able to be run with it so 
Very, very excited. Big news in tabletop role-playing games is the official Mothership box set dropping on Kickstarter November 2nd, 2021. So I am very, very, very excited for that. Um, we will be running that on the Adventure Archive, which is what you're listening to right now is the Adventure Archive. Um, either Jason or myself or both at some point um, will be running those uh, those adventures. Uh, I'm very excited for that. I know Critical Role did a mix in their one shot of Alien and Mothership mixed together. So it'd be really interesting to see how that kind of homebrew came together. I did not watch that one shot, but I know it is um, it is out there and they did it and it seems interesting. So we'll see how well those two go together. Mothership is not part of Free League Press. I don't remember who does Mothership. It's like Tuesday Games or something like that. But yeah, so that's what's coming up. That is the news in tabletop role-playing games and on Kickstarter soon, and that's Mothership, um, the RPG. So, getting into what we're getting into for the day, which is Troika, the Numinous Edition. Man, I am tired this morning, and I am just not doing a good intro into the entire session today. Today, on the Weekly Scroll, we will be going over Troika, and after I go over Troika, probably about an hour and a half, um, our resident... Uh, blood sorceress and cheese mistress um, uh, Jess will be coming on um, to talk about um, the first uh, experience she had as a GM, which was on this channel doing um, the cheese tabletop role playing game, which was a um, cheese themed adventure using um, a rule set that I kind of slapped together. Um, it's a 2D6 system that she adapted to fit even more so into the campaign that she wanted to run. Um, so she will be on in about an hour and a half, probably around like 9.30, 10 o'clock. Um, and we will talk to her about tabletop role-playing games, about being a player, about being a GM, um, about um, all things associated with that. And we'll go over the cheese adventure a little bit, kind of get her inspiration, um, you know, talk about maps, talk about a lot of things like that. So she did. Uh, Drow, how is it going? Um, the cheese adventure, she absolutely killed it. Um, it was wonderful. It was so much fun. Um, I don't know why my chat box um, looks the way it currently does. Um, let's make that the size that it should be. Um, so yeah, if you have not seen Cheese, um, hey, Drought and Amerisun, how's it going? Good morning, guys. Um, if you have not seen Cheese, definitely go check it out. Um, it is over on our YouTube. Um, it is up on our website. Um, it was super fun. It was a great adventure. Um, she did a really, really wonderful job. Um, so yeah, you should definitely, um, go check that out when you get a chance. Um, our YouTube is youtube.com slash the adventure archive. Our website is theadventurearchive.net. Again, for whenever this becomes a podcast, I need to remember that you can't see what I'm writing. Um, but good morning, friends. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk about that today with Jess. Um, so that'll be a really good time. Um, so for um, for what we're getting into today, we are getting into this. We are getting into Troika. Um, and as I said previously, um, this is the Troika book. It comes with a lot of weird, wacky adventures. Um, as far as I know, the way Troika is written, this is a system that has kind of like a base... Um, kind of weird wacky world set up in it like there are like characters within for the character creation and they make like 66 of them um 60 66 not 6d666 six, 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 six. 
Um, and the way that um, the adventures work um, is that I think they're basically spheres within this universe. And you go into these spheres kind of in a planescape kind of way. Um, and basically to create a new world is not that difficult. You just come up with a bunch of these these different um, character creation tools and a little bit of lore, and then you just start going. Um, so that's what we're going to do right now, is go over this book. So uh, for those that can't see, um, you know, check out the VOD here on Twitch or over on YouTube when you can at some point. But looking at the book itself, because we'll talk about it, it's from the Melsonian Arts Council. Um, you can find it on their website. I don't think I think most of the most of the books go directly through Melsonian Art Council, and I think you can also get them on the Exalted Funeral, whose shirt I'm rocking today. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's a nice hardback book, well printed. Um, there is no um, there are colors, which is interesting. I think in this Numinous edition. Um, if for those of you that can see what I'm looking at right now, um, you can see that it is color coded. Um, it looks like a lot of the rule set is just in plain color, um, or the, at least the character creation set is in plain color. Um, part two, the rule set is in green. Um, part three, the um, Uh, looks like the skills section is on blue paper. Um, and then you get to what looks like it would be part four. The spells are on like a lavender paper. Um, gosh, there's a lot. Um, there's a bestiary that's on like a dark reddish paper. Um, in the back there is... Um, t -t -t an introductory adventure on like an orangish paper and then there's character sheets in the back and on the front and back cover are roll tables um, which I always love to see um, is roll tables on the front and back uh, not wasting any pages on the inside cover of the actual book you can see roll tables um, and Drow says the Merkborg stream was killer by the way thank you so much Drow yeah we haven't seen you as much around I know we haven't been streaming as much either um, but we appreciate you saying that. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, uh, for those that don't know, we also do Merkborg right now on Thursdays, um, switching in and out between various tabletop role-playing games. So a lot of the games that you will see here, um, here about here on the weekly scroll, you will be able to see at some point on our Thursday sessions with uh, either Jason or myself running them um, for our tabletop role-playing Thursday nights. Um, our Thursday games, which we're currently running like our third arc of Merkborg. So yeah, so the Troika book itself is a great looking book. Um, I do like that the various sections are color coded. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a really nice touch to have different color pages within the book itself. Um, so going over the outside of the book, that's what we see. So um, going into the inside of the book, this is the cover of Troika. Let me shrink it down a little bit so you can see um, the full cover um, all at once. Um, and this is what that looks like. It's a it's a definitely a weird, wacky cover. There's some interesting art. You can just Google it if you want. I have no idea what's going on, but I do love um, the artists um, and their art is throughout the book and we'll see all that. Let's see who's listed as the artist in here. 
Illustrated by Jeremy Duncan, Dirk Detweiler, Lichty, Sam Mamelli, and Andrew Walter. Um, cool. So yeah, the art is wonderful. I think it definitely adds um, to the vibe of the game. It kind of gives you that right off the bat kind of weird, wacky sci-fi vibe. And the art illustrations within the book as we go through it, you'll see as well really add a very interesting take to it. Um, so going into the book itself, this PDF is in spreads. I wish it wasn't, um, but it's fine. So going in, this was um, right off the bat on the first two pages, which would be the inside cover in the very first page of the book. We see roll tables. They look like um, melee weapons. So there's damage rolls um, for, and I have no idea what this means yet. I haven't actually, when we get to the rule set, those will make more sense, but um, there's sword, axe, knife, staff, spears, um, uh, number of things for melee weapons. There's another section for um, ranged weapons. Strauss says it looks like Gamma World art. I don't really have a lot of experience with Gamma World, so um, maybe we'll review that as well and we'll see how Gamma World goes. Um, there's ranged weapons and beastly weapons. Those are the three things on the inside of the cover roll table. Um, the opposite page is random spells, um, which are hyperlinked in the PDF, which is nice. Oh, and just to let you know, I'm pretty positive that Troika right now, let's bring up the Troika website, um, is 30% off for um, uh, Troika. Oh, oh, and the word Troika means a Russian vehicle drawn by three horses abreast. Um interesting uh melsonian art council yes troika no this is their ichio page i want your official page melsonian arts council um yeah troika yes yeah, steph good morning steph um, Steph is a wonderful friend of ours over at the, um, the Gilded Troll. Make sure you check them out. I know tomorrow, unless I'm completely mistaken, is their second session of, um, the Witchlight, uh, Into the Witchlight. Um, I accidentally wanted to talk about stuff. I accidentally bought this. Um, so I don't know what I'm gonna do with it. I'll send it back. Maybe I'll talk to you guys about it if you want to do anything with it. But when I say this, I said I accidentally bought the, um, Dyson Miscellany for the Witchlight Carnival um oops so um how did i accidentally buy it so i think i had it in the cart didn't realize it was in the cart um and then um i think bought it way back in the day um and then like pre-ordered and then didn't realize it was still on pre-order so um so yeah so that's how you accidentally buy something um because you buy too much stuff so if you go to the actual um, Melsonian Art Council's uh, website, which is what I'm currently looking at right now, uh, you can buy the Troika bundle for 30% off right now. Um, uh, actually, let's go to the Troika starter bundle. You get three adventures with Troika, and I have all of these. Um, you get um, Fronza Benevolence. You get um, very pretty Palazoic Pals. Um, Permian Nations, and you get Acid Death Fantasy um, and the Troika Numinous Edition right now for 30% off. They're doing that. They've been doing it for the um, 
for a while now. I think they'll continue to do it for a while now. So if you're into Troika, you can buy the starter bundle, which is uh, most of the games that they have put out for it, most of the adventures, and the Numinous Edition, which is the newest edition of Troika, which is what I'm holding in my hands, um, for £60, which, um, again, US dollars um, to pounds right now. I don't know why it's so... Um, why it's so far off 60 pounds is 81 dollars um so four books 80 dollars well there you go um still normally it runs around 90 pounds which would be even more expensive so if you're looking for troika um, it is weird, wacky, and interesting, and we will find out more about it as we continue to go through the book. But just so you know, um, they are holding a sale. They have been holding a sale for a little while. So um, first page in, random spells. Will this be the inside page, not the inside cover, the inside page? I believe it would be considered page number one, two, three, four, five. Oh, nope, not actually pages in the book. Still just the beginnings before it even gets to anything else. Um, so then we go into the credit page, um, da, 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 copyright 2015. Uh, they do have an interesting license, which is really nice when, when games do this. Um, uh, anyone may publish free or commercial material based upon and or declaring compatibility with Troika without permission for from Melsonian Arts Council as long as they follow um, the uh, various rules associated with it. And if your product like your product declares compatibility with Troika, you must state the following in your legal text on any websites from which a commercial product is sold. Product name is an independent production by publisher and is not affiliated with Masonian Arts Council. So a lot of these smaller games do a really, really good job of allowing people to create things for their systems, which um, D&D and WotC, um, they really like to keep a tight rein on what they allow people to do. Um, that's why they have the DMs Guild. Um, but it, I, I personally think that that's great, but also stunts growth because um, people can only do things um, in the parts of D&D that 5e allows you to, which is basically only published material um, and um, or the SRD, which is fine. But there's a lot of loopholes when you look at um, not loopholes, a lot of a lot of red tape and stuff when you look at actually producing things. Um, for 5th edition and Watsi does come down hard on people. Um, so a lot of these smaller game companies basically say, do whatever, just say that it's not us. So Merkborg does the same thing. Storica here does that as well. Um, and it's really nice to see people can actually um, uh, create content without fear. Um, and I think that really creates a, um, a tightness to communities where they don't want to be bad, do bad by the game. So... Moving on, um, we get to the index, um, broken down into looks like 16 parts plus tables. Um, the inside of the PDF um, is all um, hyperlinked, which is really, really nice. The only thing that kills me about hyperlinked PDFs, no, they do it. Oh my God, my heart just stopped. Troika, you won me over already. One of my favorite things about a PDF, whenever I make a PDF, I do this, um, and I've never seen, I don't, I can't recall a single time I've ever seen another PDF do this, but Troika, again, just, just found a place in my heart forever. 
at the top of each page on Troika um, is the word Troika and the um, uh, the the chapter that you're in, whether it's enemies or spells or whatever. If you click on either of those things, um, if you click on, let's go to damage. If you click on uh, the rule section, it will take you back to the beginning of the rule section. So the top right page, there's a header that always says that the section you're in, the chapter you're in. It takes you back to the beginning of that chapter. And on the top left page, which would be the even number pages, it just has the word Troika on every page. If you click that, it takes you back to the table of contents. Genius, genius, genius. I wish every PDF would do this. Hyperlinking to a page and then having to scroll all the way back up to the top to find the next hyperlinked page is a pain in the ass. Troika not only does it once, but does it twice to take you back to the beginning of the chapter and the beginning of the book itself to the table of contents page. Wonderful job, Milsonian Art Council. Um, big kudos for that. Huge, huge um, ups for um, functionality um, as far as that is concerned. Um, so that will definitely, when we get to the review, um, give points for layout and functionality, especially within the PDF itself, which in 2021, we have to talk about the PDF as well as the book. So um, moving into this, we go to the introduction, which has some beautiful art. Again, weird, wacky, bright colored art. It looks like some type of uh, green horned mustachioed man with an eye patch in full armor um, talking to what might be a merchant. And yes, uh, Steph, the style is cool as shit. Again, the 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 even just the the book art itself is gorgeous. Um, there's five or six illustrators. One thing that I really think that a lot of smaller companies can do with a rule set, just putting rule set on black and white pages and putting it out there, is does not, in my opinion, um, you could have the greatest rule set ever, um, but if you don't have great um, art. Um, that really gets people in the mindset of the system that you're putting out there. I think that um, it, uh, uh, it's, it's not beneficial. It is incredibly beneficial to have great art that um, gives a vibe of the set that you're putting out there um, in out there, if that makes sense. I know I'm stumbling on my words a little bit. Great art will make people like your game more and will help them immerse into your rule set in the vibe that you're going for for the rule set, if that makes sense. So yes, when I look at Troika, it honestly looks like a fucking acid trip is what it looks like to me. Um, the cover art, like this art, again, it looks like a green, um, it looks like a, a green knight of some kind with horns and an eye patch and a wonderful mustache talking to some blue merchant in a yellow dress. With a bunch of weird, wacky, interesting um, uh, items on her table, um, a tapestry going across the top in like a magenta fuchsia color, and little creatures with eyeballs staring up at her from underneath the table. It is definitely an acid trip on paper. Um, Steph says, yeah, like you want to know the author's intentions, what they're envisioning so the players can get in the mindset. Yes, art definitely helps that immensely. Merkborg is a perfect example of that. Um, Merkborg, without the art, just the rule set is pretty straightforward OSR. Um, Merkborg um, with the amazing art from Johan Noor really, really, really um, puts you in the mindset and their intentions of the um, 
uh, of the um, authors and creators. So uh, they do a wonderful job with that. And I think Troika also does a wonderful job with that. So looking at the introduction, um, bring it back down a size of two. There we go. So um, another great graphic on the top introduction. You are reading a tabletop role-playing game in which one player takes a part of the game master and prepares the world and controls the people in peril in it, while the other players create characters on a journey through that self-same world. You now have the context and key terms to explore the medium independently, and nothing I say here can fully instruct you on what is a deep and rich form of entertainment on par with cinema or fly fishing. Treat it like you would any new hobby, but know that this activity is one you engage in with others. Use best practices and safety tools to ensure that everyone playing feel safe, that no unkind line is crossed, that no one is made to feel to their detriment, and everyone can enjoy themselves fully. Uh, beyond that, here is Troika, a science fantasy RPG in which players travel by Eldritch Portal and non-Euclidean Labyrinth and Golden Sail Barge between the uncountable crystal spheres strung delic delicately across the humped back sky. What you encounter on those spheres and in those liminal places is anybody's guess. I wouldn't presume to tell you, though inside this book you will find people and artifacts from these worlds which will suggest the shape of things. The adventure and wonder are in the gaps. Your game is defined by the ways in which you fill them. So, a couple of things from this introductory page that I really like. Um, they immediately start talking about what um, tabletop role-playing games are and using safety tools that are appropriate for your group. Um, safety tools are a wonderful resource to have. I think everyone uh, needs to at least be aware of their use. Not every table uses them. Um, some of those things can be hashed out in zero sessions, but safety tools are never a bad thing to have, especially with a newer or different group. We're not going to go deeply into safety tools right now. Um, I think that for the most part, um, any rational human being that's not a garbage person understands why safety tools would be used. And anyone that wants to argue about the use of safety tools can fuck off. Um, so if they are appropriate for your table, use them. And I like that any game... Um, that has that suggestion right in the beginning. Um, but the beyond that section, um, it really gives you the immediate um, uh, kind of definition of Troika, right? Um, it tells you what it is and it tells you how it works. As I said in the beginning, um, uh, I, I flipped through this before and said, I think there are spheres in which it works. So. Um, again, it says beyond that, um, it's a fan science fantasy, not science fiction, science fantasy, um, where uh, players travel between portals and labyrinths and on golden cell barges between uncountable crystal spheres, right? So basically, much like Planescape, um, I'm sorry, like Spelljammer, um, all of these worlds are in crystal spheres spread across the universe um, and... Um, you can access them through various different ways. So basically that allows anybody to create any sphere they want. Um, and anything on that sphere is is the, the game in which you can play. Um, and it moves on to the next section and again talks about, um, I wouldn't presume to tell you what's in these spheres. Um, you, you find them on your own, you make up the worlds you want, but within the book itself is basically a collection of various things across those various spheres to give you a sense 
um, and what they call a shape of things. Basically give you the vibe of the world, um, introduction to some character creation tools, various characters um, and items um, that could be in your worlds to give you a starting point on creating your own world, which I really enjoy games that do that. I like games that give you broad strokes um, because I feel like it allows for more player agency um, and um, player creativity. I think one of the issues that I have, and I, a lot of the, the, my, for those who don't know me, hi, I'm Ryan. Um, I don't think I introduced myself in the beginning either. Um, my main um, role-playing game experience is D&D 5e. I didn't play previous editions. I have read through the previous editions. I would love to run previous editions um, or, or variations of those like OSC, which we'll go over at some point on this podcast. Um, so I will compare a lot of things to what I know about D&D, 5e, and WotC versus other tabletop role-playing games, which I'm digging deeply into at this point. One of the things I don't like about 5e and WotC is um, the way that they write things um, is... Uh, I know there's names for these rules and I need to figure it out, but um, it, it's like the various rules when you, when you interpret law and the Constitution, same thing. There are games where if... It, you can only do what it says you can do. And there are games where you can do anything that it says, um, anything you want, as long as it doesn't explicitly say you can't. Um, and I prefer games that give you a lot more freedom where you can do anything you want as long as the rules don't say you can't do that. Um, same thing with creativity. If you give every aspect of the world or you give every aspect of the adventure you don't allow player creativity if you give too many suggestions for the activities that somebody can do they will feel restrained by those activities whether you continuously tell them or not um you can do things beyond this list but here's a list of 20 things for the most part the way the human brain works most people will only do those 20 things so if you give people a lot more if you give people less they can by themselves do more because they don't feel restrained. Um, and that's one thing I do like about Troika on this page is basically saying, this is just a framework and some inspiration. Um, you can use it, um, but um, do whatever you want beyond that. And then they release adventures that are completely different and crazy um, and, and with a very good, again, inspiration and a, and a guide or, or a reference to be able to do that. So I think that's a great um, a great thing from Troika. Okay, let's move into the book itself, past the introduction. So right off the bat, um, on page two, we go into character creation. Okay. So let's go over the character creation section and maybe even create a character after we go through some of this. Um, so character creation overview. Go get the character sheet found on page 110. Okay. Roll 1d3 plus 3 to determine skill. Roll, okay, let's just let's just do that right now. I have a post-it note. Um, I will grab my Dungeons and Dragons pen. Um and I will bring up um I will bring up a dice roller. Um, dice roller. 
It doesn't even let me do what dice I need to do. Let's do rolladie.com. Okay, so we are going to do roll 1d3 plus 3 for number 1 to determine skill. Um, number 2, it says roll 2d6 plus 12 to determine stamina. Number 3, it says roll 1d6 plus 6 to determine luck. Number 4, it says record baseline possessions that every new character starts with. 2d6 silver pence, a knife, a lantern, and flask of oil, a rucksack, and 6 provisions. And number 5... Roll D66 on the background table and record possessions and skills. Okay. All right. So we got one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, so the first one is roll 1D3 plus three for skill. Okay. So roll 1D3. Um, roll 1D3. Go. Uh, that's a two. Two plus three is five for skill. Um. Okay, roll two d six plus twelve to determine stamina. Okay, so I will go two six sided dice. I actually really like this rolladay dot com. That's what I'm using right now. Rolladay dot net. Um, let's add that to D and D. Um, so we're gonna go two d six plus twelve. Um, that is eight plus twelve, so that will be twenty for stamina. Um, number three, roll one d six plus six to determine luck. So we'll go one d six plus six. That's a three. So I start with nine luck. That's my character. Um, we have all the baseline things. So let's do two d six silver to start. Um, that's eleven silver. And then we have those other things. And then roll D66. We're going to roll one 66-sided dice. Ooh, that's a 57. I roll on that one. Okay, so that is first page on character creation. So I have those down, and we'll see what what those mean at some point i think it literally gives me my character based on the book okay so um backgrounds backgrounds are everything your character was before you got hold of them they provide you with skills possessions and other special benefits where noted slide into the role and make it your own roll randomly to determine your starting background notice that they only touch the edge of specificity it is up to you to tailor them to the world you play in. Rework them or remove them entirely and replace them with your own unique versions, or your own unique vision of the spheres. Boldly lay claim to the games you play. Create content recklessly and always write in pen. Interesting. I like that. That's a nice um that's a nice line there. Boldly lay claim to the games you play. Create content recklessly and always write in pen. Um, there's a section on creating your own backgrounds. When creating your own backgrounds, as a general rule, stick to 10 or so total points distributed in a range of 1 to 3, with 3 being someone who has already mastered their trade. Do not miss the importance of a description. They are the player's window into the world, but don't feel intimidated by them. Keep them simple and pack as much information into them as you are able. When they are short and evocative, the player will fill in the gaps. The backgrounds need not be balanced or equal to one another, but should instead be fun and flavorful. After making a new background, take a moment to consider the reaction of someone receiving it instead of some other entry in your particular and ever-changing list. Balance the enjoyment rather than the numbers. Again, I really like that. 
So this is not necessarily a game for you min-maxers out there. This is a game for people that want to to be free with their creativity and RP. So um, let's look over this first background. So it's D66. Um, I think they talk about... I don't think you roll D66, if I remember correctly. I think you roll a D6 and a D6, and those two numbers together give you your number. So I got 57, so we'll look at 57, but we can also just roll 2D6. Um, so that's why it starts. The very first one is 11. It's not 1. So it's 11 through 66 because... It's 11 through 66 because uh, it's 1 to 6 on a die and you do a 6 and a 6. So you just rolled 2d6. So that is a 3 and a 6. So that would be 36. So we'll look at 55, 57 and we'll look at 36. But looking just at the very first one, if you were to roll a 1 and a 1 on a 6 and a 6 for d66, um, it is the Ardent Giant of Corda. Every giant has a different story about Corda, well told and interrupted with tears and laughter, of how they lost it and mean to find it soon enough, but oh, what of today? We should drink and cheer. We'll search once again in the morning. Um, possessions, an artifact of Lost Corda, being either an enormous blue star map, which can tell you where any portal leads with a successful astrology test, or a pocket barometer for forecasting the weather, five and six accuracy, or a ruby lornette granting plus two second sight. Um, and that gives you a list of advanced skills. So I think these are skills beyond skill, stamina, luck. Um, strength, astrology, run, and climb. Um, so since it's normally a range of one to three, four must mean super strong, but it makes sense because they're a giant. Um, and each one of these backgrounds has this beautiful illustration. So this one looks like uh, again, every piece of art in this book looks like an acid trip. Um, it looks like a giant in space with wings and some type of um, kind of Darth Vader-ish face mask, but it's like a globe on top. Interesting. Um, number 12 is a befowler of pawns. A wise man, a high priest, and a pawn pisser. Um <laughs> A typical but committed adherent of um, P estimation point P estimation point S S S H R P, the bloated toad god. Um, Thirteen is a burglar. Fourteen is a cacogen. Those filthy born spawn in the humpback sky, lit only by great black anti suns and false light. Your mother was selling on the golden barges, or caught in some more abstract fate when she passed you. Far from the protective malaise of the million spheres, you are receptive to the power and the glory at a generative time, and it shows in your territoid form. Interesting. Chaos Champion, Clavager, Demon Stalker. So these are all things that you could theoretically find um, in the humpback sky in various spheres across the universe. Um, so all of these um, are character backgrounds that give you a description, possessions, advanced skills, and some give you um, special abilities as well. So there's one that's just dwarf. You are a short, hairy, belligerent creature. 
Dwarves are a, sculpt a sculpted people, ungendered, and thus there are no dwarf children or dwarf families to prevent you from fully committing the important dwarfy endeavors of creating fine art in unusual places. Um, you intend to find the most unusual places in all the million spheres. Your possessions are a masonry hammer and a roll of artist supplies. You have a massive list of advanced skills, awareness, sculpting, painting, metalworking, construction, strength, fist fighting, wrestling, and hammer fighting, and your special ability as a dwarf. Dwarves may eat gems and rare metals as food replacements. You, in fact, vastly prefer the taste of rare minerals to mundane food. Interesting. So let's look at what we rolled. We'll start with number 36. This would be our background. Um, we're going down to page 34, 36. Interesting, because of the way numbers work, again, D66 is not one through 66, since you're rolling a six and a six in the same way that you would roll like D100 on two D10s, there are numbers that are missing, as in you can't have 37, 38, or 39. Um, or 40 for that matter. So from 36, the next number is 41. 41 is a necromancer. That would be cool. That would be cool. But 36 is a monkey monger. Um, life on the wall is hard. One is never more than a few yards from an endless fall, yet those precarious villages still need to eat. This is where you come in with your edible monkeys. The distinction is purely for appeal since all monkeys are, of course, <laughs> edible. Um, you used to spend days on end dangling your feet off the ledge. Oh, that's why we can't do 57. So we won't even look at 57. Um, watching over your chittering livestock while they scampered hither and thither. Um, but there was no future in monkey meat. You wanted much more and so stepped off. Or you fell off. Either way, you and some unlucky monkeys are here now and that's all that matters. Possessions, you have a monkey club. I guess you can make up what that is. I assume it's a, a, a club either made of monkey or to hit monkeys. Um, you have a butcher's knife. You have 1d6 small monkeys that do not heed commands but are too scared and hungry to travel from you. So let's see how many monkeys I get. I get three monkeys. Okay. Um, and you have a pocket full of monkey treats. Cool. Advanced skills, I have four to climb, two to trapping, one to club fighting, and one to knife fighting. Okay. Um, and my special, the GM may choose to roll on this table anytime the mean of monkeys must be determined. So there's a 1d6 on basically, it sounds like the, um, the attitude or the disposition of the monkeys. There's playful, stalking, hungry, tired, austere, and aggressive. Um... So, and then the graphic is a nice white, yellow, and red graphic of um, a person holding a bunch of monkeys in robes. Monkeys even popping out of the robes. It's interesting. So this is page 20 on Troika for the monkey monger. All right. Um, necromancer, parchment witch, derivative dwarf. Oh, interesting. A derivative dwarf is basically like a specialized dwarf. Um, again, every single one, every every page has a different character background um, that consists of description, possessions, advanced skills, and possibly special. 
um, and a beautiful trippy as fuck um, uh, illustration um, on each page as well. Um, again, talking about the art once more, the art really like sets into your mind the vibe of the game. Um, what Steph said, um, the author's intentions and what the players can envision. Um, and these are very kind of like trippy, sketchy. Um, gosh, it reminds me a little bit of like Alice in Wonderland, but like even trippier. Um, a lot of red and yellow, um, blue and yellow. Um, it, it also gives me kind of a, a very um, like face cards in a poker deck vibe too. Um, all all uh, line work and solid colors, no shading. Um, almost a little bit of a woodcut feel too. Um, Thaumaturge, Thinking Engine, Vengeful Child, Venturesome Academic, Wizard Hunter, uh, Zoanthrop, um, and then at the end another interesting graphic page of looks like maybe a wizard and a knight making their way into a trippy castle with a magenta colored dog with them. Um, yeah, Drow, gotta get that monkey action. And then we move into the blue pages, which is the actual rules. Okay, so, again, uh, for the most part, uh, besides these D66 backgrounds, uh, Troika is more of a system than a world. They, I think they specifically say this is not a world. These are just all of the items and backgrounds and things like that are just suggestions um, and that you can use to play in a world, but come up with your own world. Um, so the rules number one rolling the dice there's only one die type used in troika that being the d6 as i said before so this can be used as a d3 a d6 a d66 or a d66 and so on to roll a d3 just roll a d6 and have it rounding up to roll a d66 and d666 or more or more just roll a d6 as many times in order as there are sixes so a D66 would be a D6 followed by another D6, as I said before when we were going over the backgrounds and stuff like that. So D66 backgrounds does not mean 66 backgrounds. It's probably more like, oh, I mean, I guess we can actually count it. I'm not going to. It's probably more like 20, 25 backgrounds. Um, to do more actions, you'll be required to roll 2D6. To do most actions, you'll be required to roll 2D6 adding them together as a roll under or a roll versus. Okay, so roll under. Yes, uh, so Drow said DCC games art is killer too. Yeah, a lot of the official DCC adventures has really, really interesting art. I do have uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. I bought the um, leather-bound, well, leather-et-bound um, special edition foil cover because I fucking, of course I did. Um, and we will be going over Dungeon Crawl Classics at some point. Um, my only uh, hesitancy with Dungeon Crawl Classics is uh, the book is 600 pages long. 600 pages. Um, Troika, I consider to be a long book. It's 110 pages, um, but much smaller, like like a, like a small paperback size, but it is hardback. Um, Dungeon Crawl Classics is a massive fucking tome. That's 600 pages long. So we'll get into Dungeon Crawl Classics at some point. Um, and it's an associated game. I think it's, I think MCC is there too, like Mutant Crawl Classics or something. 
But anyway, so Troika, roll under or roll versus. So rolling under is throwing of 2d6 with the intention of scoring equal to or under a number. This is mainly used in unopposed situations, like climbing a wall or casting a spell. Rolling 2d6s always results in failure. So roll under is what you want to do, so rolling high is always a failure. Okay, that's a little different. Um, roll versus, mostly used for combat or other contests, occurs when two opponents each roll 2d6, add any applicable bonuses, then compare results. The higher total winning. In a duel, you might be rolling 2d6 plus your sword fighting total, looking to beat your opponent who is doing similar. Okay, roll under, roll versus, and the only dice you need is a 6. A d6. I like that. That's fun. It's simple. Um, advanced skills and spells. Characters have a variety of advanced skills and spells granted them by their background. The number given in the background plus their skills um, is referred to as their skill total. Write this on the character sheet. Good morning, Jax. How's it going? Um, testing advanced skills and spells. Most tests of advanced skills and spells are roll under. When you successfully test an advanced skill or spell, put a tick next to it on your character sheet. These are used to get better. Okay, so we'll talk about get better when we get there. Um, and then there's luck. Okay, number three, luck. Of all the numbers on your character sheet, luck is likely to fluctuate the most. This number represents your character's fortune and intuition tested whenever fate swipes at them. When this happens, the GM will ask you to test your luck or suffer the consequences. Um, all right, so 3.1, testing your luck. Roll equal to or less than your current luck score. My luck score on the character I created is nine. Um, every time you test your luck, reduce your current luck score by one regardless of whether the test was successful or not. So you're using up your luck, um, even if you use it successfully. And is it roll under, reduce, roll equal to or less than your current luck score? Okay, so it's a roll under. Testing your luck is optional. You may always refuse to roll and, and instead accept your fate. The GM is not obliged to give you details of the consequences if they are not already obvious. Interesting. Okay. All right, um, three, two, gaining and losing luck. For every eight hours rest, you may regain 2d6 luck. Luck may not exceed the starting value rolled at character creation, save for exceptional situations. Running out of luck inflicts no special penalty. Okay, so basically you can use your luck um, in a situation, I assume, to have a better outcome. Does it actually specifically say what the point of luck is? You can test it. Okay, let's see if it talks about what the point of luck is. Use of luck, okay. Um, yeah, it doesn't really explain luck. Or suffer consequences. So when bad shit happens, basically, you can test your luck to make that bad thing not happen or accept your fate. So you don't. Get the, so it specifically says running out of luck inflicts no special penalty, um, but it's basically it's luck. It's it's you roll to see if you have it, um, and if you run out of it, you're sol. You're literally sol. Um, all right, use of luck in combat. Yeah, you just want it. You want to have luck. Um, 
So I rolled a nine to start uh, with my luck. Not terrible, so I have nine lucks. But again, every time you use it, whether you fail or succeed, you, you lose a point of luck. Um, use of luck in combat. In the case of a tie, the character may test their luck to break it in their favor. When a character successfully hits an opponent, but before rolling for damage, they may decide to test their luck, and if successful, may add two to their damage roll. Okay, I like that. That's interesting. So luck is a big... Luck is a very interesting mechanic in the game. Um, it really allows things up to fate. You can break ties with it to make your hit successful, or you can roll to add additional damage, basically getting a lucky hit in. Interesting. That's clever. I really like that. That's really clever. Um, and an optional rule, luck versus death. If you find your games are too fatal and that the turnover of characters is too much to bear, the GM might optionally allow characters who have died to test their luck and instead of dying, be incapacitated, wounded, or saved by some bizarre twist of fate. So, interesting. So you, as an optional rule, and I would probably allow this, luck versus death allows you to, to um, potentially avoid death being saved by some bizarre twist of fate. Good morning, Janelle. Um, okay, number four, stamina. Um, 4-1, running out of stamina. So my stamina score I rolled was 20. When reduced to zero stamina, you are in danger of dying and must be healed in order to survive. If this is during an initiative round, the next time the end of the round token is drawn, you die. Interesting. So if you're in combat and your stamina is reduced to zero, you have to be healed by the end of by the next end of the round token, which I guess we'll get to tokens, um, is drawn. If this happens out of initiative, your friends have one opportunity to heal you, or else you are dead. Interesting. Um, healing. You regain two d six stamina if you sleep for eight hours. So two d six would be a max of twelve. So that's barely over half of my total stamina. Um, you may also eat a provision to regain 1d6 stamina. Okay, so potentially up to 18. A maximum of three provisions per day provide healing benefits. There may be other forms of healing available at your GM's discretion, such as visiting bathhouses or drinking potions. You may never have more stamina than your starting total. So what you roll in the beginning is your character. <clears throat> I'm curious what the getting better part does. I assume it only adds to your your abilities, your skills, and your advanced skills. Negative stamina. If you ever go below zero stamina, you are dead. Death. You may immediately make a new character while others mourn your loss and fight over your possessions. This new character starts exactly according to the rules found at the beginning of the book. So every time you come in, I, I like games where not necessarily built for long campaigns, like a 1 through 20 5e level thing. Um... I, I really enjoy that. Um, I really enjoy that. Um, maybe like a maybe like a short arc or just a story, um, or or like a you know like a short campaign, not you know destined for three four years. Um, so basically, I'm curious what getting better looks like later. Okay, um, Troika, another beautiful graphic here at the top: red, yellow, white, trippy. Um, 
sketchy graphic of a knight on a horse um, with a tripped out sky in the background and what appears to be a, a giant knight um, or a statue as he stands on a cliff. Interesting. Okay, so initiative. Okay, so so this is this is a part of Troika that's really interesting to me. I did flip through this, and it's really really interesting. Um, it's weird. So this is this is this is this is fun. So initiative number five. Um, assemble the stack during combat or at other times when it is important to know who goes first. You need to assemble the initiative stack. To do this, get a container. And a selection of colored dice or other convenient markers. Um, consider cards, poker chips, and so on. Um, I did read this before, and just a reference. For those of you who think that 5e initiative takes too long, this would take even longer. So I don't imagine Troika is a super combat-heavy game. It feels more roleplay to me. Um, but when you uh, go into initiative, it's interesting and fun, but it does take a little while. So basically what they're saying is gather a number, gather colored item, whatever it is, dice, poker chips, whatever, and you put it all together in a container. Um, assign each character two tokens of a single color. So you need a bunch of, very, a, a lot of multicolored objects and every character gets two, two total tokens of one color. So we'll say that my tokens are black and I have two black tokens. Um, add tokens to the stack for the enemies equal to their total combined initiative. If you have eight lizard men that are initiative two, you would add 16 tokens to the stack. It's a lot of tokens. So if you have four characters, you would have eight character tokens, each, you know, two each of a different color. Um, and then if you have eight lizard men with initiative two, you would add 16 green tokens or whatever to the stack. Um, 5.1.3, add one token of a distinct color to the stack. This token signifies the end of the round. So the round could go on and on and on, and characters could have multiple turns for every round. Um, 5.1.4, optional rule, um, enemy initiative limit. It is very likely that sometimes a character's enemies grossly outnumber them and make it very hard for them to act. The GM may optionally limit the number of enemy initiative tokens placed in the stack to double that which the characters contribute. So if a party of five, 10 initiative tokens total, is attacked by 50 goblins, 50 initiative tokens, the goblins only contribute... Okay, let me... The GM may optionally limit the number of enemy tokens placed in the stack to double that which the characters contribute. Okay, so regardless, so if the characters put in 10... If there's 50 goblins, you only put in 20. So it's just double what the characters have. Bear in mind that the GM should feel free to balance the initiative stack as it seems appropriate. Um, Drow says, no way, roll a d6. Yeah, so I think what what this is doing to set up is just, it, it adds to the weird, wacky craziness since you could theoretically go twice in a round. You could theoretically go twice back to back if your token gets drawn and you have no idea when the round is over because there is one um, token that signifies the end of the round. If that's the very last token you pull, you could literally pull through every token for a round. Let's see, there's a using the stack section. So so this is what I'm saying. So it seems like a really fun, interesting mechanic, but I, but I can't imagine doing... If I was the GM, I would probably prep this prior to combat. Um, if I'm prepping the game, 
I would probably get a container and put all of these tokens in or at least have them in a stack ready to go like a bag and a big glass and I would just pour the bag into the glass that way you can add or subtract tokens based on what's going on I don't know why in my mind I'm picturing those colored like little glass um the colored little glass um things at the bottom of a fish tank I don't know why I don't know why but that's what that's what pops into my head um I think those would be really cool and you could get those in an entire rainbow of colors um or yeah just go online and get a bunch of a bunch of dice from like a cheap like just go on wish and get a million dice um all different colors um but if you need 20 tokens of something i mean that's a big stack and i imagine like a big glass like a big container you can basically shake up and then just pop one out at a time um so again this takes a while as a gm what i would probably do is have each combat prepped beforehand with um, or even just in a bag. Yeah, just a dice bag. Just a dice bag um, with with all of these different little glass, glass tokens in them. Um, you can even, if you have a 3D printer, buddy, just have those all 3D printed. You could 3D print little, little objects or, or tokens and then just paint them all different colors. But basically, this game takes a lot. Because theoretically, if you have 50 goblins and you want to put 50 initiative tokens in, you need 50 tokens of something. You can have like a giant, giant stack. Okay, so let's see how we use the stack. Anyway, as I was saying, I would, I would, I would prep this in advance. I would literally just have like a container, like below the table or behind me, or a bag, just a bag of of tokens, and I would just clop the bag down and just kind of swirl through and pull out a token each time, just like a big ass like dice bag um using the stack the gm removes a token from the stack at random the color or design of which determines who holds the initiative and who takes a turn consider giving a copy of their token to each player so that everyone remembers which color or design is theirs yeah absolutely um so that's that's the initiative stack you literally build a massive massive just container full of various colored um things in order to to see what um, your initiative order would be, interesting. But again, I can I can personally see that getting kind of old, um, especially if you don't prep it beforehand. Um, having to count out everyone's individual tokens. Honestly, what I would probably do is at the end of each combat session, um, either give everyone their tokens back and have them put their tokens in each time. I think that would be interesting. And then basically plop down a big bag in the middle, have everyone has three tokens. They would keep one, put their two tokens in the bag. And then I would say, okay, there's 20 goblins. Here's 20 tokens. There's three of this. Let's throw those in. And then I would close up the bag. I would shake the bag, stir it up a little bit, and then throw in that end of end of round token. Um, and um, again, stir that in and and then start from there so i think that'd be a fun way to do it if everyone had to literally throw their tokens into the bag the gm throws the bad guy tokens and the in a round token into the bag you shake it up and just go that's probably the easiest way to do it um all right six actions um when you hold the initiative you may take a turn and can generally perform one action the following list is not exhaustive and the gym is encouraged to interpret player intentions as best they can so this is kind of a list of 
roughly like moves a little bit um but i like i like games where one, one of my knocks <laughs> yeah um janelle said make enemy tokens plastic and pc tokens metal so you can use a magnet to pull their tokens out at the end but if you shake metal tokens in a bag full of plastic tokens metal tokens will be at the bottom of the bag um and they will always go last um so that might not be um whatever wants to go for so making the stack sounds interesting um but again, if you don't prep that beforehand or have at least the bad guys prepped beforehand so you can pour those in, um, that could be a pain in the ass. Um, we'll see. And, and running that online, you would have to have some kind of, you would have to have some kind of module. Like there has to be like a making the stack module or something because I can't imagine just rolling that like... Uh, I can't imagine doing some type of turn order in the way Roll20 is now. I imagine there's a Troika Foundry module, or at least a, a Troika add-on that you can do to create the stack. We'd have to see and check that out to actually run this online. Um, okay. Um, so we're talking about actions you can take. Um, good morning, Jedi Mama. How are you doing this morning? Um, for those on uh, listening on the podcast in the future, um, please go check out the Mother of Jedi on Twitch. She is a wonderful person and a wonderful streamer. Um, so we're talking about actions here. There's like four options that it has, five, six options, uh, five options. And it says this is not exhaustive. One of the things that I, that I have a knock on, um, I still have to go over a little bit more, but things like Dungeon World and Powered by the Apocalypse, they give you a list of moves. And in the games that I've played that have a lot of those moves listed, um, people stick to those moves, even though it says um, you can do, um, you can do other things. Uh, they're really, um, they cover a lot of things. And I feel like people get restricted by that. So I like the idea if you save ahead of time, here's some really basic stuff you can do, but don't 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 say I want to hit someone or I want to shoot someone. Just tell me as in like the name of this action, just tell me what you want to do. Like we're we're writing a story here. I'll tell you what you got to roll. If you say I want to jump off that wall and punch that dude in the face, I'll have you roll. Uh for hit someone, if you say you pull out your bow and and shoot someone in 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 the arm, um then I'll have you roll for shoot someone. If you want to do something crazy and wacky, I'll figure out as a GM what I want you to roll. You just tell me what you want to do. And that's what this is. Um, GM is encouraged to interpret player intentions as best they can. So uh, when you hit someone, to stab, bludgeon, or otherwise physically interfere with someone. Um, so it could be pushing, could be um, grappling. Uh, roll 2d6 plus skill plus advanced skill um, versus an opponent doing the same thing. The winner rolls for damage, and the loser deducts the number generated by the damage roll from their stamina. Okay, so stamina is your HP. Stamina is your hit point. So I have 20 hit points. Okay. Um, uh, note that either party in any exchange can potentially win. In a tie, both parties have avoided hurting each other. Also note that this means you can potentially hit an unlimited number of people in a round but you may only initiate once per turn. Interesting. Okay. I like this. This is interesting. So 
it's not like you can do you can initiate one action per turn which i guess is interesting what if you pull both of your tokens we'll have to see if they explain that um but basically if you're fighting 20 things 20 goblins for example and all 20 try to hit you you could hit all of them instead all 20 of them because every verse every um action like this like i hit someone action um is a versus thing and the winner gets to roll damage every time i like that i like the roll versus i think it's a really interesting um interesting thing so it really reduces the whole concept of of everything happens at the same time in six seconds it's literally this is just a series of actions that everyone is taking um interesting okay so once again to sum that up when you physically interfere with someone like hitting or stabbing them you roll 2d6 plus your scale plus your advanced scale versus an opponent rolling the same rolls and regardless of who initiated the action the winner rolls damage dice and the loser takes that total number away from their stamina and you can only initiate um you can potentially hit an unlimited number of people in a round but may only initiate once per turn okay so six two shooting someone shooting an opponent is resolved by rolling versus their skill or appropriate evasive advanced skills such as shield or dodge shooting in a melee when shooting into melee on a successful hit assign a number to every individual involved and roll a die if their number comes up they receive the damage okay so if you're shooting into like a bunch of people you don't pick one you assign them all a number and you roll and that person gets it so you could shoot your friends um aim on your turn you may decide to take aim with your ranged weapon to do so hold on to your initiative token when your next initiative token is drawn you may roll twice and pick the best roll if the end of the round token comes up and you haven't used your aim token, you may decide to hold on to it for the next round. Interesting. So it's kind of like for ranged aim attacks, you can basically hold your action until your next token comes up, roll twice, pick the best one, and you can even hold it over into the next round if you want and continue to have your aim. I assume then you would only put one token back in, back in the, um, back into the, into the, um, stack. So when you shoot at somebody, it's it's a roll versus their skill or appropriate advanced skill. What skill would you... Oh, their, their skill score. So you just have a skill score unless you have an advanced skill. So my skill score is five. So someone would need to roll over a five in order to hit me. Okay. Um, six, three, cast a spell. Each spell has its own instructions on how it should be used. But in general, you need to spend a certain amount of stamina and roll under or roll versus for spells that require you to touch an unwilling party. For instance, in order to create some kind of effect, unless the spell says otherwise, it requires at least one hand free and the ability to speak. Roll on the oops table if the result is a fumble. Okay, we'll get to the oops table. Give me one second real quick. Okay, so interesting. 
Each spell has its own instructions on how it should be used, but in general, you need to spend a certain amount of stamina and roll under or roll versus. Okay. Um, delay. You may choose not to act when you hold initiative. In that case, put your token back in the stack. Interesting. So if you don't want to act, you just throw it back into the stack and keep going. All right. Every action is assumed to have a bit of movement involved. Anything less than four meters is folded into whatever else you might be doing. If you wish to chase after someone or perform some other involved locomotion, then just spend a turn doing it. Okay. So you can move four meters is like 12 feet. It's kind of the same Merkborg style of um, crossing a regular sized room can just be part of an action. Um, and if you want to go beyond that, you take a move as your action. That's pretty, that's, that's, I like that. So we're not looking at necessarily like, um, I guess you could do this on a grid, but I feel like the concept, the game's concepts are more free form than that. Um, so it's just roughly, you're talking about like, you know, close or farther away. All right. Retrieve an item. If you need to get something out that you weren't already holding in your hands, roll 2d6 and score equal to or... Okay. If you need to get something out that you weren't already holding in your hands, roll 2d6 and score equal to or higher than its position on your inventory list. Interesting. So if you want to be able to access something more easily, put it at the top of your in inventory list. If you succeed, you can pull it out and do what you intended. Otherwise, you spend your entire action finding it. Double ones always indicate a failure. Okay. So there are times where double ones are a failure in the game and times where double sixes are failures in the game. Retrieving an arrow counts as an item retrieval. Make sure they're packed on top. See sections 10.3 and 10.4.1 for your for more on inventories. Okay. So exactly as I said, you can you pack your bag in the order that your inventory list is. So if you're a ranged person using bows and arrows, you have to roll not only to hit someone every time, but you have to roll to pull an arrow out of your inventory every time unless you're walking around holding like six arrows in your hand. So that's an interesting thing to do. I don't know if I like um, having to have multiple rolls on a turn, um, but it makes sense. Um, and you could theoretically try to You could theoretically um, fail at pulling an arrow out, and that is your turn. That's that's your entire action. Um, because if you succeed, you pull it out and do what you intended. So if you say you want to shoot somebody, you have to um, retrieve the item and then fire on a person. So you could just miss. You could just not. You could have be digging in your bag to pull out an arrow um, and... If you can't quite get it, if it gets a little stuck, you take your whole action pulling on an arrow, and on the next action, it's in your hand already, then you can fire it. Interesting. Um, if an item is in your hand, you may use it however you like. Um, 6.8, grapple. Roll versus... So, okay, so hitting someone and grappling are two different things. 6.8, roll versus your opponent's wrestling skill. If you win, you may either knock them to the ground or deal damage as unarmed and knock you both to the ground from throwing or tackling them. On a mighty blow, part 7-4, we'll get to that, um, you render them unconscious for 1d6 rounds. If you fail to grapple them, 
they may deal damage to you as though they have attacked you normally, whereas if you fumble, they deal a mighty blow. So a, a mighty blow sounds like a critical hit, basically. So you can try to grapple someone, and if you fail, they can hit you. Interesting. I do like, again, as you go through the PDF, um, everything is broken down into sections and subsections. So section 6, 6.7, 6.71, things like that. Um, and anytime it references something else, there's a hyperlink to that other section. So mighty blow is section 7.4 there's a hyperlink to that section. They did a really good job with this PDF of making sure that um, it's, it's very well hyperlinked. Okay. Um, other concerns. Uh, before we start section seven, I'm gonna take a quick break. Um, this would be when we throw it to our sponsors, but we don't have any. So it's just gonna be some music um, and I will be back um, in uh in just a minute And we are back at it. Um, so uh, going into section seven, um, other concerns, 7.1, cover. When attacking someone in cover, they receive a bonus to their roll to not be hit. So this subverses. Um, consider a waist high bush to be plus one, while a castle's crenulations would be plus six. Okay, um, and then I assume that you would just kind of give a bonus on a scale um, between the one and the six um, uh, based on what they're hiding behind and things like that. Um, 7.2, enemies. Mechanically speaking, an opponent is typically reduced to three numbers, skill, stamina, and initiative. Beyond this, they may have an advanced skill or two or some peculiar special rules. 7.3. Hitting someone unawares. If your opponent is not aware of your presence, your attack is a roll under rather than a roll versus. They may not attack back, and you may add two to your damage roll. That's nice. Okay. So 
referencing that to 5e, if you do a surprise on somebody, since everything is usually roll versus in this game, it's a roll under instead, and you get bonus damage. That's cool. Okay. Mighty Blows, 7.4. If you roll a double six while attacking... Hey, Jax, thank you so much for those 24 biddies. I appreciate that. Um, uh, if you roll double six while attacking, you might strike a mighty blow, win the exchange, and inflict double damage. Okay. Um, if both parties strike a mighty blow, a spectacular clinch is formed, shattering both weapons. In the case of beastly claws, tentacles, and so on, they lose 1d6 stamina instead. Wow. Wow. Okay. If you roll a double d6 while attacking, you strike a mighty blow. So a, it so basically, if you roll two d6, you get a critical hit, a, a mighty blow. Um, if both do a mighty blow, you shatter both weapons. Uh, Jack says a priori incantatum, like in HP and GOF. I do not. I assume HP might be Harry Potter. I have no idea what GOF is. Um, I'm not a, a, a Harry Potter fan or person, so I do not know what you are referencing, my friend. Um, Seven point five fumbles. A roll of double ones in combat results in the roller losing the exchange and their opponent adding one to their damage roll. If both parties fumble, they each deal damage to the other, adding one to the damage roll. A roll of double ones in combat results in the roller losing the exchange and their opponent adding one. Okay. If they both fumble, they each add one. Okay. Um, shields. Shields reduce damage rolls by one to a minimum of one. Oh. Uh... Ah, gotcha. Yeah, so it is a Harry Potter thing. Gotcha. Um, so you can't get away unscathed. Damage shields reduce damage to a minimum of one. So you will get hit. You will take damage regardless. Is that's how I read that? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Shields reduce damage rolls by one to a minimum of one. Seven point seven. Use of multiple weapons when rolling damage. You may choose which weapon to reference the damage roll against after rolling you must be holding it in your hands or nearest approximations obviously so you can't hit with multiple weapons you can just pick which one you hit with um and you can pick after you roll interesting seven eight falling over when on the floor you suffer minus two to all physical rolls against those standing including damage rolls okay and you must spend a turn getting to your feet it sucks to be prone falling too far when engaging in uncontrolled falls you lose 1d6 stamina per two meters fallen when you land okay so you could definitely die falling in this i like the meters thing um i i like that they give you a reference but i i think that two meters six feet um roughly for us filthy americans um is um is a good round thing like two feet or two meters four meters um it's enough of a distance to basically say like a person's height or four meters is like across a room so it, it's a it's it's a good range of of uh distance 
without being too specific. All right, drowning. When you fail a swimming test, you begin to drown and lose 1d6 stamina. For each consecutive swimming test where you make no progress, you roll an additional 1d6. So for instance, your third failed swimming roll in a row would lose you 3d6 stamina. Once you lose all stamina, you drown. That's fun. Hey, truly rageous. Yeah, um, I... So I assume with the swimming, you could potentially have an advanced, um, an advanced swim skill, which would be beneficial. Um, but if you fail and fail and fail, you only drown if you would otherwise die, because as you fail your swimming test, making no progress, you take damage. For each consecutive swimming test where you make no progress, you roll an additional one d six. So for instance, yeah, so every time you fail swimming test, you lose 1d6 stamina. And it's a roll, it's not six, it's 1d6. So it could be one, it could be six. Um, so that, you could you could try to swim for a long time um, if you get great low rolls or for a very short period of time if you don't. 7.9.1, fire, poison, and bleeding. Any ongoing debilitating effects should be treated similarly to drowning unless you have a specific effect in mind um, unless you have a specific effect in mind, have the victim lose 1d6 stamina per turn, with it optionally becoming more severe unless either pass a related advanced skill test or successfully test their luck. Improvisation is strongly encouraged. Okay, so basically any ongoing effects, and they specifically reference fire, poison, and bleeding, acts just like drowning. Okay, degenerative effects. Test for drowning, fire, etc. only when the end of the round token is drawn. Okay, all right. So anytime the end of the round token is drawn, anyone with ongoing effects would test those effects. All right. Um, so you could act prior to... If you're drowning and your token comes up, you could try to take an action. And then at, when the end of the round token comes up in the stack, you would test to see if you're drowning. Okay. Henchmen. Henchmen are created as you would a monster with truncated abilities um, only covering their essence. They are their own people with their own motivations and are not just pieces of equipment. It is up to the GM and players to flesh them out or not, <clears throat> as the case may be. Also see section 5.4. Um, time. There are two main units of time in the game, turns and rounds. A turn is what someone does when they hold initiative and is a few seconds long. A round is the period between drawing successive end of the round tokens and is roughly equal to one minute. Okay. Damage, section eight. Um, when you win a roll versus an opponent in combat, you inflict damage. After successfully hitting someone, roll d6 and consult the damage charts on the inside front cover of this book. Reference your damage roll across the top row and the weapon down the side. The result is the damage inflicted and is, and is deducted from your opponent's stamina. Okay, let's let's actually go back to the inside cover of the book and, and see what that is. After successfully hitting someone, roll a d6 and consult the damage charts on the top of the inside front cover of this book. Reference your damage roll across the top row and the weapon down the side. Okay, so let's bring up our dice roller again. 
Um, so it's 1d6 and I roll uh, four. Okay, so let's say I have like a short sword. Um, let's go to the inside cover. Um, and my damage roll for, oops, bring that down a little bit. My damage roll for, let's just say sword, okay, um, was a four. So I do six points of damage. Is that what that says? Is that what it meant? I'm going to hold the book in my hand and then go back to the other page and see what it says. Okay. Um, so again, I have the physical book here as well. So going back to the table of contents. Let's go back to section eight for damage. Um, when you win a roll versus an opponent, after successfully hitting, roll a d6. I got a four. Consult the damage charts. Reference your damage roll across the top. So again, I rolled a four. And the weapon down the side, sword. Um, the result is the damage inflicted. Oh, so yeah. So your damage inflicted, there, so there's a chart here for how much. That's kind of, um, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know how I feel about literally everybody needing to have the like their weapon chart in front of them. So what you roll is not the damage. What you roll is a reference to the damage. And they do have seven plus as an option, but you're only rolling a D6. So I don't know, uh, it talks about damage modifiers here. Um, so let's get into that. When striking a mighty blow, you double the amount of stamina lost as a result. So if I do, if I roll, when I hit them and I roll the two D6s, if I roll a four, they would take 12 stamina damage. Um, damage modifiers, all modifiers that add bonus to damage, unless otherwise specified, Modify the roll of the dice, not the actual damage inflicted. So for instance, I have a plus one to my damage roll and roll a five on the sword entry. Due to my bonus, I'm counted as having rolled a six and I inflict eight damage. I don't like this. I will say it. I'm not going to... Um, let's get through this section. 8.3, unusual weapons. It is entirely acceptable to use existing weapons to provide the damage matrix of roughly equivalent exotic weapons, such as counting a rapier as a sword for damage. This does not preclude the possibility of making specific matrices for your indexes. I don't like this. I don't. It's fine. I understand to a point. I don't like having a damage matrix. Um, I guess you would eventually memorize what your, what your thing is, but instead of um yeah i'm not a big fan of having a damage matrix so when we go back to the beginning for the sword entry um let's roll this up big again when we go back to the beginning with the sword entry looking at the sword um if you roll it's a 1d6 and again what they said was if you have modifiers to damage it's not the actual damage it's the roll to determine your damage so it's a D6 is your damage roll, and then you check the melee weapon matrix to see how much actual damage you do. I don't like that. Straight up, like, I'm not even going to pretend. I just don't like it. Um, so say you roll, I rolled a four, the damage, the damage to the opponent is a six. So basically on a, on a one, the damage is a four. On a two, three, four, or five, the damage is a six. 
On a six, the damage is an eight. Um, and on a seven plus, the damage is a 10. Again, I'm not a fan. I mean, I guess if everyone had a copy of this, I'm sure you could print one of these out. Um, is there a place on the character sheet to actually write your... Okay, so not terrible. Let's let's reference the character sheet real quick. Um, when you actually look at a character's character sheet, um, it does have your weapons listed, um, and it does have your um damage matrix that you can fill in so that's not too bad i mean it, it i still am not a huge fan of that concept but you can fill in your damage matrix so when you look at this it lists on the character sheet weapons and then there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven plus each individual boxes i would put sword on the line and i would write four six 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 eight ten across the rest of it so it does give you a space on the character sheet to mark to mark those out i think it's weird to roll a damage die to get a different number to roll damage i don't know how i feel about that um some of them are are, are vastly different so with the sword you know, two through five, you know, you have two two and three chance going one through six of the, of the same damage. But if you look at something like a mall, um, going back to um, back to the first page, um, you um, it's if you roll a one, it's a one. If you roll a two, it's a two. If you roll a three, it's a three. If you roll a four, it's a six. If you roll a 5, it's a 12. If you roll a 6, it's a 13. If you roll a 7 plus, it's a 14. Again, uh, I don't... Uh, I, I, mm, the fact that it's on the character sheet makes it easier. It makes me not dislike it as much. I don't, just don't know how much of a fan I am of that. I don't know how much of a fan I am of that. Okay. Um, I think today we're going to get through advanced skills. And then we'll bring on... Or we'll get to the advanced skills section. Um... And then go through um, the rest of this uh, next week. Because we're about page 52 out of 110. So we're getting through about half the book. Um, so let's get through the rest of um, damage and getting better. And then we'll bring on um, our guest for the week, which will be Jess, the cheese mistress. So um, armor. Um, I love the British spelling of anything with an O-R into an O-U-R. I will use it all the time. I will spell mustache with an O-U. Um, I'm a fan. Armor offers a certain degree of protection to your soft and supple body. There are four levels of protection vaguely defined, allowing you to assign whatever assortment of pots and pans you might be wearing to an appropriate level without too much bother. A target is considered to be unarmored, lightly armored, modestly armored, or heavily armored. Each modifies damage rolls by 0, minus 1, minus 2, and minus 3. Interesting. To a minimum of 1. So they're 
to use armor, it reduces your damage. That's an interesting concept. It reduces your damage roll, which reduces your damage based on the, the, the weapon matrix. Um, that's interesting that that's what they chose to to be the um, the detriment to having higher armor being the damage you can output. Because I can't imagine, I mean, again, it's a game, but in the real world, if you're heavily armored, you can still swing a sword pretty hard. So it's interesting that they would that they would do that. Um, uh, armor encumbrance. Um, armor takes up a number of item slots equal to twice its protective value. So heavy armor would use six slots, for example. Okay, when we get to items, that'll be interesting to go over. So armor, wearing armor reduces the damage you can put out and reduces the inventory slots that you can use. So armor isn't always the best thing to use, really. Might be better to have a shield. Um, okay. Um, encumbrance. You may carry uh, 12 things without issue. Um, on your character sheet are 12 spaces to write in the things you're lugging around with you. Some items are of inconsequential individual weight like arrows, um, and only ever take up one slot unless you have an awful lot of them, which constitutes a lot is up to your group to decide. I like that. So arrow counts as one, um, and you can carry 50 arrows. It only counts as one. Small items. Okay. Large items um, are anything you need both hands to hold. They take up two slots in your inventory. Armor has its own rules. Yep. So one of the one of the things about Merkborg that I'm not the hugest fan of, um, they do have um, inventory, but I feel like the range on inventory it gives you like a weight, and the weight is part of the inventory slots. But uh, like a scroll is considered an item and takes up an item space in your bag. A Zweihander is considered an item and takes up one or two spaces in your bag. Um, but like a sword and a scroll are of equivalent, like they, they each take up an inventory space. Um, and I feel like those are incredibly unequal. So I like this idea of having, um, if you have multiples of small items. So if I have three scrolls, I'm not taking up three slots. I'm taking up one slot holding three scrolls. That makes sense to me. Large items, if it takes two hands, um, it takes up two slots. Um, and retrieving items in a hurry. Note that having things near the top of your inventory list is advantageous, so put things you'll rarely need in a hurry, like armor and money, near the bottom. Pack your bag as well. So you're already wearing armor, but it does count in what you're carrying, so you can put them all the way at the bottom. Um, and your inventory list is considered the way you pack your bag, which is cool. Overburden. If you find yourself carrying more than 12 items, you suffer minus 4 to all rolls due to the inconvenient weight. If you're carrying 18 items or more, you suffer minus four to all rolls, you can hardly move, and you can as unawares. Damn, so don't carry more than 12 because every roll you make is a minus four, that's crazy. Dropping things in a hurry. If you want to unburden yourself quickly, roll 1d6. The result is how many slots of things you may carefully put down this turn. At the GM's discretion, you may roll 2d6 if you don't mind them getting broken or lost. Okay, so you want to drop a bunch of shit, 
roll to see how much shit you drop really quickly. Um, so we will do getting better. Um, we'll finish that. And then as I said, we will bring on Jess. So getting better. Um, life is learning and you cannot experience without growing in some way. Your characters bend and change in response to their environment. When you successfully test an advanced skill or spell, you stand to learn from it. Put a tick next to it on your character sheet. Um, 11.1. How to advance. The next time you have a chance to rest and reflect on your journey. Wait, 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 wait. Your characters bend and change in response to their environment. When you successfully test an advanced skill or spell, you stand to learn from it. Put a tick next to it. So when you test advanced skills or spells, you get a tick on your sheet. Next time you have a chance to rest and reflect on your journey, you may check to see what you have learned. Choose up to three advanced skills or spells with a tick next to them. If you roll 2d6 over your current skill total, advanced skill or spell plus skill, so you to get better on the skill, you can add the skill to the roll, you may increase it by one. When you have finished rolling, remove all ticks from your sheet. Interesting. So you don't get any additions to your basic stuff. Your skill, your stamina, your luck, that's always the same forever. You can increase the rolls for your advanced skills. Um, remove all ticks from your sheet. 12 plus advanced skill. When an advanced skill has reached 12, you must roll a 12 followed by another 12 to improve it further. There is no upper limit, but you literally have to roll max twice in order to fix that. So that would be kind of crazy um, if you were to advance it beyond 12. Um, and it'd be hard to get there anyway because you are, well, is it harder? You're, you're adding your advanced skill to your skill roll on a 2d6 to get better on the skill. So the better you get at your advanced skill, the more you're adding to the roll each time. So if you get to like a plus five on your advanced skill, but then it's also getting higher. So it kind of evens itself out realistically. If you roll 2d6 and you add your advanced skill plus your skill, the skill doesn't get higher. The advanced skill has to roll over your advanced skill, so that marks itself out. So it doesn't. It all comes down to a roll anyway. So there's actually no reason to roll. No, because you have to do it against your advanced skill. Math is hard, people. Um, so yeah, so 11.1.1, uh, we already talked about that. Training and learning new advanced skills. It is also possible to improve your advanced skills or to learn new ones, though you must find someone willing to teach you. They must have a higher skill total than you, and most, which is your advanced skill or spell plus your skill, and most likely require payment unless you they are your fellow party member or already owe you a favor. Training takes one week plus one week per rank you already have in the advanced skill you are looking to improve. So if you have a five, it takes six weeks. At the end of this time, you get one chance at advancement. Failure means you just have to train harder. When learning new advanced skills, you must roll under your skill on 2d6 to gain your first point precocious students are easier to teach okay so if you're bad at it it's a roll under on the 2d6 not a roll under or not a roll over interesting okay so the only way you advance in this game at all is is advanced skills learning new skills and getting more skills but your skill um Stamina and luck are all what you roll from the beginning, and that's it. So you get no more HP, you get no more 
um, luck. You get no more anything. All you get when you get better is more abilities and skills, which makes sense. You're a grown-up human being, most likely, unless you play a child. Um, you, you can't really get much more hardy than that. You know, you get, you get, um, you can learn new things. Um, and that's about it. I really, I like that. I like that idea that you don't become demigods and, and damage sponges. Um, you just get, you learn new things, which is, which is life. Um, so that's really interesting. Okay. So next week we will do Troika part two, part two, part two. Um, and we will start with advanced skill descriptions and move forward from there into the spells, the bestiary, um, and all of those things. Um, so we're going to bring uh, Jess, our guest for the week, um, onto the stream. So we'll just get that set up real quick. Um, give me one second. Good morning. How's it going? Thank you for waking up. Oh, of course. <laughs> Not that you wouldn't, just that it's early and it is Saturday. So. Yeah. I did wake up a tad earlier than normal. Um, yeah, usually I'm getting off work, so this is a good time for me, but maybe we'll push a little bit later. We'll see what, um, we'll see what happens going forward. So, uh, yeah, so this is a weekly scroll and this is our guest this week. This is Jess. Jess is a player in, um, the Dark Kingdoms. Um, she is in Merkborg. Um, she is our blood sorceress and our, what is, what is, what is your class again in Merkborg? Uh, the esoteric hermit. That's right. Yeah. 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 Cockroaches in your hair. Um, yeah. and most recently I basically forced her to, um, <laughs> to GM, uh, an adventure on the adventure archive. And I'm glad I did because it was very, very fun. It was incredibly well-written, did a wonderful job, um, so that's what we're going to talk about. But to start it off, um, let's let's get there. But let's just start with uh, tabletop role-playing games. I mean, that's the premise of this entire stream is to talk about tabletop role-playing games. Um, D&D, or what we're talking about today, Troika. Um, what, how did you get into tabletop role-playing games, just in general? Whatever, whatever version of it it was. And which one was your first? Um, D&D was my first. Um, and I got into it when I was working at Trader Joe's several years back and there was a group of friends that started a D and D group and, um, it didn't last very long. They did it like maybe, maybe we did it like five or six times, but it was really fun and I always wanted to continue doing it. And then, uh, when I met Jason and he was thinking about getting into your group and then introduced me to it. And here we are. Yeah. So, um, so the group she's talking about was our local meetup group in the area. I had started it, um, and, uh, it got really big for a while before the pandemic kind of really, really killed it off. Um, but we used to do, um, starter, you know, like, um, what am I trying to say? Like new player games, um, introducing new people to the to the system to D and D. Um, and I used to run in my house a number of different campaigns. And Jess, you've been a part of at least what like three campaigns. One still ongoing, but I think you were in an initial Midgard campaign that we yeah. had going, um, where you played a Russian voiced like <laughs> uh, little halfling. Yeah, um, one of my two voices. 
Yeah. Um, you played in the in Myths of Midgard. You were also in that, correct? It was you, Jason, um, and a couple other people. Um, and that uh-huh. ended, um, unfortunately. Yes. Um, and then we're still doing Dark Kingdoms, which is what we run on Wednesdays. And you play Daryana, um, Daryana Bloodright, our Elfmark Seraphage Sorceress. Um, and that's been going on for over two years. So, yeah. So we've we've actually known each other for quite a while now. Um, yeah. Well, obviously. Um, and we used to play the game out of my house. I remember um, Jess was originally joining Dark Kingdoms as kind of a guest NPC. I used to do this thing where I would have uh, guests show up for games, but then hide them in various places and have them burst in when it was their time. So they would either stand outside my door or wait upstairs <laughs> in a room and then come in. Um, Jess started out as as Dariana Bloodright. Do you want to talk about how you kind of came in and and and, and what that was? Um, I remember correctly, uh, we had a discord chat going and I was waiting in my car and, um, so I wasn't hiding in your house like many other people, but I came to the door when you told me to, and, uh, you would give a cue and somebody would burst in and I burst in. I forget what I said, but. I guess I was like fighting a, a what was I fighting? A troll or a I, I think it was a zombie ogre. I think Okay. Yeah. It sounds like you're pretty yeah. certain. Well yeah, so, so sounds you, right. you originally you originally came on because um Andy, um another player in our game, um, who plays Beat'em Dobberbreen, um, had an IRL um child. Uh, uh they, they they birthed a thing or at least their wife did um so he was out for a while um so i wanted to bring jess on we had played other times and and you're a great person to bring on um and i think the way that the adventure went there is a guard outside it's the blood vaults of sister alcava which is an adventure by cobalt press that i folded into our campaign it's actually one of my favorite little sections of the campaign that we run in one of my favorite like kind of uh, standalone adventures that that cobalt press put out it's really well done at least the final battle was in my my opinion um but there's a guard up front who's like an undead ogre and as the party kind of rises up to see what's happening they saw this woman battling this undead ogre um and that was you um and then you came in the door but my favorite part is not just that you walked in but um what your character looked like when you came in and what your character looks like in general so um yeah and what was that uh so i did the full makeup i did like the scar with like some some wound makeup and then i uh put like the strip across like the red strip across my eyes and like the little half moon and the line and then use like some eyelash glue to attach a uh ruby gem kind of thing that i got from like the craft store onto my chest and then like put fake blood around it and tried to make it look like it was actually set into my chest and that was actually really fun i loved it yeah, it stuff was, like that so yeah it, it, it was, it was awesome it was it was a great it was i mean i i my players our players in dark kingdoms have always done almost everyone i think at some point has brought something to the table like irl that that fits their character like tongue taker actually brought like hand like handmade homemade like um 
like jelly tongues to the table and was literally eating out of the table. Jason wore like a flesh mask because his character actually cuts people's faces off. So for Jess to like walk in wearing this ruby and, and in the game, the ruby is a magic item that she embedded into her chest that like pulls um, uh, energy from herself in order to like empower spells and things like that. Um, so it was really cool to see Jess as her character roll in. Um, so it was a great thing to see and just investing right away in the character. Um, so we got through Akava, we got through everything, um, and he actually ended up coming back to the game after his uh, paternity leave. Um, and the plan at the time was for Jess to just kind of like ride off into the sunset. And I think even in game, you kind of rolled off into the sunset. And then, and then, then you're like, come, come to the kitchen yeah. real quick. Yeah. I was like, let's have a powwow. And I was like, so um, do you want to just stay? We have room at the table. Um, it was fun playing with you. Do you want to like actually stick in the campaign? And you're like, sure, why not? Um, <laughs> and that was like over a year ago. Um, and then and I then, just rode back and was like, psych. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I don't I'll even remember around. how we kind of just like shoehorned it back in. If everyone's kind of like caught up to you or like when they got to the next area, you were there and you're like, well, actually, I'm not doing anything else. Like, I think it was something out. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and that was when we were still doing meetup games. That's when we were still doing the games out of my house and the pandemic hits. Um, and then we kind of turn initially the Dark Kingdoms, um, into basically what we are now, which is the Adventure Archive, which is our, our Twitch channel that you're either watching right now or listening to the podcast for. Um, and, um, and that's kind of how we got to here. Um, and then at some point we did a community challenge. Um, whether you were, you, you didn't fight hard enough for me not to make you do it. So we did a community yeah. challenge to get Jess to run a game. Um, of course it succeeded. And then over the course of a couple months, just kind of, um, Jess, you put that game together and it ended up being cheese, which was, uh, I think everyone that watched it fell in love with it. It's, it, it was a great adventure. It was really, really well done. Um, and the production value of everything you did was crazy. <laughs> Like Thanks. if if you go check it out on on our YouTube, I'll drop the links in here, um, uh, or over on our website, you'll see the intro video is amazing. Um, the intro awesome. video is not on the YouTube. The intro video is not on YouTube at all. It was cut out. Pretty sure. Jason, we gotta we gotta have a little bit of that intro video in there. Um, <laughs> but it's on the Twitch. But, yeah. Um, the Twitch and that laugh. You cut. We got to leave a little bit of the pre-stream in there. A little bit of the pre-stream. We set it up with a little bit of music, um, <laughs> but but watch it on our Twitch. Their vod is always going to be up here on our Twitch. Um, you can also check our Instagram for all of the because um, not only did you do an intro video and the BRB streams and the entire layout, you also did a lot of uh, a number of um, social media graphics and a video leading up into. Uh, throughout the week, which you and Jason both do, because you guys are incredibly um, graphically, artistically um, talented, end up doing everything. We went to us. college for design. <laughs> yeah. Um, so all of it falls on you guys, which we very much appreciate. Um, but so check those out on our Instagram. You can scroll back um, and look at those. But all of those videos leading up to it, as I said, the production value, everything was was gorgeous. So just all of the lead up into it, everyone was super excited for. And then we actually run the game, and it was it was awesome. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about, um, why cheese and, <laughs> and like the whole lead up into the cheese adventure? Uh, why cheese? 
you know, I just, I really like cheese. It's like a joke in my house that I love cheese. And <laughs> so, uh, God. she loves cheese. Yeah. Everybody always goes, cheese? Because supposedly that's what I do. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I like the idea of having uh, a game set in the 70s for some reason, just like a more modern time period. It's not like super high fantasy, but is inspired by fantasy because I feel like a lot of things in the 70s were just inspired by like Lord of the Rings or uh, inspired by... Well, a lot of things that came out in the 70s were just kind of like mysterious and occulty and fantasy inspired. So I wanted to like combine that into the 70s era with like these goofy, kind of goofy, like 70s trope characters. And then, I mean, cheese, I don't know. I just love cheese. <laughs> It just kind of came together uh, being in this mountain village um, where cheese is made and then, you know, combine that with like the fantasy element and the seventies and it just became what it, what it was. Yeah. So the, uh, like one of the best parts of it, I think is that vibe of the whole thing. Like you had this nice write up for everybody on, to really set the mood and it was really well well set mood i know that i ended up being the occultist um and i know that for each of the um each of the characters you had us pick a type of cheese i should have worked on my italian accent a little bit more um <laughs> but uh it, it really helped set the um it helped set the the <laughs> yeah jason uh um, it only uh, it helps set the mood. So I mean, I even like I said, I found a um, a black. So my character was like super into Black Sabbath and Aleister Crowley and all this occult stuff and whatever. And I was actually able to find a Black Sabbath band T-shirt, which had like a skeleton in in like with a shield and armor and a sword, which gave that fantasy vibe. And it was actually a tour shirt from 1978, which was the year that you ran the adventure in. So it was perfect. I loved it. My my terrible hair filter got in the way of it most of the time, but now I have that. Um, but uh, it really helped set the mood um, and have yeah, that whole, like, the shirt. vibe. Yeah. But even even for all the characters, like all the, the, the write-ups that you did for each one. Um, Jason was born in 1978. <sighs> Yes. Old, old man here. Um, I'm not far <laughs> behind. Don't worry. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. The the lead up into it, I think, was fantastic. Giving us a list of cheeses was was great to be able to um, uh, to go through. Um, yeah, that was fun because cheese tasting notes always have like like weird things that could be like personified. I guess if you want to make it into a human characteristic or uh how they look so i kind of tied all that into these these loose characters i let you guys choose from and then once you guys nailed down which one you wanted i kind of finessed it into the character sheet that you guys eventually saw but that was fun to come up with all the different cheeses because so many cheeses could be names you know yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was Romano. Um, 
And that's clearly a name that could be done. I don't remember. We had Stilton. We had Romano. We had... What else did we Fontina have? Fontina and Bernos. Yeah. So yeah. I know Jason was Fontina. And he had like the whole wig and, and the whole thing. He was mm -hmm. our, our female healer. Um, yes. uh, truly asked for Gorgonzola. We actually battled a Demogorgonzola. Um, yes. <laughs> in in one of the things, so Gorgonzola was one of the creatures that we attacked. Um, so leading up into the adventure in general, I know I you had talked about cheese, and one night at work, I was very bored and basically started writing a game that I kind of I don't I, I don't know if I force you to use it or if you're just like sure that's fine. I wanted something that was not D and D five e because for first per first time running an adventure, D and D five e can be a lot. Um, so so talk about that a little bit i guess just about i know because you adapted it in a really really fun ways and i i have been building that game off you know uh by my own advancing that a little bit farther and farther um and you kind of took that and turned it into your own so just talk about the system a little bit um kind of how you tweaked it a little bit kind of how it worked a little bit and um and just uh just that in general i guess okay um yeah i when I was thinking of what I wanted to run, I definitely didn't want to run D&D &D 5e. I just didn't want to open that can of worms. I knew it would be like too much and would overwhelm me. And I, I wanted it to be more about like the vibe and the theme. And I wanted it to be super easy for me to be completely honest. Um, and I had played games that were powered by the apocalypse so i kind of liked that system and i had played with merc borg a little and i like the simplicity of that and so i i definitely wanted it to be something more along those lines and in the early stages ryan wasn't planning on being in the game i don't think i think you it was more like you were gonna kind of help me with my first dm experience and kind of like help help me with whatever I needed help with. Um, and so we had a chat and kind of went over like the very basics of what I was thinking. And you came up with the fromage system, um, which is like the, the more loose version of your incursion system, which you um, have since refined and made a little bit more complicated. But uh, when when you decide well i eventually asked you if you wanted to play and you said sure and so i kind of i took your game systems and kind of like bended them to fit my game i guess a little bit but for the most part i stuck to your rules and um i don't know do you want me to talk about the system itself it's like a, a 2d6 system with mixed successes. And I don't know, I really like that because it, it adds to the narrative nature of the game. It kind of encourages the characters to be more creative, encourages me to be more creative. It also requires the GM to think on their feet, which can be tough at times, but I feel like it gets me more into the game where like when you're running a game, at least for me, it's easy to get distracted and kind of like get out of it. So um, when I'm having to make up what the character, not what the characters are doing, but like what maybe uh, 
adversary is doing. It makes me like in the game more. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the system basically, like uh, we we talked about, um, I created this. It started as fromage, turned into incursion. I added some more, and basically, there's gonna end up being like two versions of it, like a more advanced version and a lighter version. Yours basically took the lighter version and added a little bit of the features of the advanced version, like your um. Like everyone had a couple ability or uh, attribute traits, just like one one plus one, one, one minus one, um, mm-hmm. and like you said, just two d six mixed success. And what I like about it is exactly what you said. You like about it. It really encourages creativity, not so much like you, there's only this very small list of things you can do, and there's specific roles and things. You know, it you can only do what it says you can do, versus being able to just do um, whatever you want, and the GM just being like, sure, uh, roll for this. Um, which is really fun. And I think you took it and you did a really good job with it, not only just in in running the system, um, but the way that you did the character sheets and the items and things like that were really, really clever. Like I really liked um, the one item I had, the Chaos Magic one. Basically, um, it's an item that can either harm or heal, and you declare beforehand what you want it to do, um, but then you roll 2d6, um, and it either does that or I assume it does the opposite one. So I could either try to harm someone and end up healing them or try to heal myself and end up harming myself or an ally. Um, and that was really clever. And I felt like it fit perfect into the the vibe of the system. Um, and then I think everyone got like one one bit of healing um, mm-hmm. and like a random item and like a weapon or something like that. So um, definitely yeah. Yeah, took took the, the, the this thing that I, again, bored at work one day, kind of threw together, um, made it your own and did a really, really good job with not only the system, but, you know, everything else associated with it. Um, yeah. So, is that a? Did you do you feel like it's a system that you could run another game in? Like, is it's what you would do again, or would you want to do something else? Yeah, yeah. It was really easy to run. Um, I had to do a little bit of balancing with uh, the monsters, um, but yeah, it was easy, and I think everybody had a good time. Uh, yeah, I'd definitely run it again. I don't think I'd ever do D and like D and D. I like playing D and D, but it's just like too much for yeah, my D&D mind is, to hold. It's definitely not <laughs> rules light by any stretch. Um, it's kind of like yeah. rules medium, um, but has since just they keep adding more and more rules to it with the Tasha's and all the other stuff and like the stat blocks and everything. It's it's definitely a lot. Um, it's not easy to just pick up and start going. And I know. A lot of DMs um, will. It's it's hard to DM five E really really well. It's one of those things where you can do it, you can do it all right, and you can make it your own. Um, but I think the system in general, without move going to another hate session on on D and D and Watsy, um, it's not super um, beginner friendly to run the game. Um, and the way that they cope with that is by basically saying like here's all the rules, but do whatever you want. Um, and that doesn't necessarily make it an easy system for some people. Like some people want the rules to make sense and to, to be able to move forward with that um, and not just say, sure, I'll make it up. Because some people, especially as a newer GM, it's hard to make it up if you don't have the experience behind it. You know, you have to know the rules on when, on you know, how to bend them and how to break them. And if you don't, it's difficult. But knowing, uh, you know, at this point, three books like this thick is, is a lot. So it makes a lot of sense to move into something that's more, especially for one shots to have something that's a little bit, yeah, a little bit more simple and things. Um, yeah, totally. And the cheese adventure itself, the maps were also gorgeous. What did you use to make the maps? Thanks. Um, I use dungeon scrawl. It's like a free 
online app and you can just download the the map and plop it into uh i assume boundary and roll 20. i use roll 20. just drop the link in chat it's just dungeonscroll.com and what's cool about that um is you can there's a lot of different presets and things for it um i've never done a map as in-depth as one that you did um, cause a lot of the, the base map is just that kind of like Dyson logos, old school D and D style, just like white 10 foot squares with a little bit of like shading on the outsides. Um, but you did a, like a, like a color, like rooms look like rooms. Did you, were you adding additional assets or were all those assets part of dungeon scroll? Uh, those assets were part of dungeon scroll uh supposedly you can make your own and upload them i didn't have much luck with that and i was running out of time so i just used the existing ones uh yeah they have like a layer system where you make the like bounding boxes of the rooms and stuff and then you can add an art layer which you choose from whatever assets they have available and you can just like layer them on top of each other or scale them and that's how I came up with like the floor textures and bookshelves and things like that. You can like there was a small bookshelf and I stretched it to make it a really long bookshelf that like went along the edges of a corridor and things like that. Yeah, it was a pretty cool free program. It took yeah, a little bet. effort, but it was a pretty cool map, I think. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it looked great. It looked fantastic. I mean, it's definitely all the things that we needed to to be able to immerse into the into the system and into the game. Um, I know I also have Dungeon Draft, which is like a, a similar thing that's got a lot more tools. Um, but realistically, like it looked like it was made in Dungeon Draft. Like I wouldn't have thought it was like a free map that you just put together. Um, so for those of you who don't want to spend money for something like Dungeon Draft, Dungeon Scrawl is a great resource to use. And clearly, if you if you watch the adventure, you can see how well done the maps were. Um, and how about the monsters in the adventure? Um, before we get to like the adventure itself and the twist and everything, which was was wonderful. <laughs> um, I know we had talked a little bit when I was bored. I was talking at work about like coming up with some of the names, but you had some really great monsters you created. So, so what were those? Yeah. So when we first started talking about monsters, I think we came up with like a bunch of monster names, um, and they were all really fun. Uh, but with the the narrative of the story, I eventually cut it down to four monsters. I think one for each character. Um, and so I picked my four favorite monster names, which was the Camembert, the Limburglar, the Debbie Gorgonzola, and the Cheese Whiz. And that's like an order of how they meet them. Um, and so I kind of, based on the names, like Camembert, I'm like, what am I going to do here? I had to kind of uh, add elements into the game to make it fit the monster names in a little, in, in a way. Like, so there was a taxidermy bear in the corner um, that kind of, you see the taxidermy bear and then the Camembert comes out from behind the taxidermy bear. And it ended up being like Bruno's dad. And he was like this hulking figure that when he was coated in cheese kind of like looked bear-ish. Uh, and then like the Limburglar was Stilton's brother and Stilton is like always up to no good. And his brother was trying to break into 
the facility to steal the recipe and sell it. So he was burgling. Um, and then Demi Gorgonzola was Fontina's mom. And the cheese whiz was Romano's grandfather. But they didn't know this when they were playing. So at least three of the characters killed their own um, family members. Did they get the <laughs> final thinking, blows? Is that how it worked? Uh, no, not intentionally. Um, but it did end up that way. Bruno's killed the camembert, did the final blow on the camembert. Stilton did the final blow on the Limburglar. And then you did the final blow on the cheese whiz. Unfortunately, Fontina was like really struggling to get a hit in. So she did not do the final blow on her own mom, <laughs> the Demi Gorgonzola. But yeah, it was funny how that just ended up happening. Yeah, and it was a great twist. I think we all kind of assumed in the final room that since it was kind of his den in his office that the cheese whiz was Romano's grandfather. I think I picked that up pretty quickly. And I think mm -hmm. I said something and everyone was like, yeah, we kind of assume this. But I don't think anyone really caught on that there were three other people, there were three other family members missing. <laughs> um, and that we're like, oh, shit, it wasn't just we didn't just kill my grandpa, we all killed all of our family members. Um, but um, all of those family members had in some way, shape or form kind of upset the like the cheese, cheese demon. demon. Yeah. yeah, that had like taken over. Yeah, the cheese demon. So I guess I'll get into the story, the weird story yeah. I came up with. The cheese demon was like this, this, uh, I don't know, you never see the cheese demon, but you hear the cheese demon and it's like comes from deep within this Kirtlesburg mountain that surrounds the the city of St. Kirtlesburg or the town. And um, it brings prosperity to the town. It's kind of like, as long as you appease this cheese demon, um, the people of the, the cheese factory are worthy, then this town is prosperous and really uh, wealthy. And like, I don't know, like think uh, Switzerland's rich, right? <laughs> like think a rich Swiss village uh, that just has a lot of acclaim and a lot of money based on... Um, their cheese making prowess and unfortunately at at some point during like the yearly ritual all of the family members that worked so each of their family members worked at this cheese factory uh romano's grandfather owned it and they all proved themselves unworthy with something that they were doing be it an affair or stealing or becoming too obsessed with power um and they all uh did not appease the cheese demon and so the cheese demon took over their bodies with this like moldy cheese and kind of like started to decay the building and creep into the the village you, you could see like an eerie mist and it smelled really bad and when these characters went to go check it out, that's what they found. But yeah, they didn't know the monsters were their family until they killed them and solved, like finished the cheese whiz at the end and then walked through the building and saw that their 
family members were dead on the ground where they killed the monsters. That was the big twist. Yeah, it was a like I said, it was a great twist. I did, I, I I called Romano's grandfather. Did not expect to walk back through and see all the dead bodies of the rest of the family members. So yeah, I tried to see it a little bit. Like you, you'd find clues like that this person worked in this room mm-hmm. while you guys were like fighting or after you fought. Yeah, no, you you did. And looking back on it, we're just like, oh shit, yeah, we totally should have picked that up. But didn't because I know in the room with Demogorgon and Zola, I think it was Fontina's mom's uh, like lab coat or something was like mm-hmm. thrown over one of the chairs. And I think yeah. we all just kind of assumed that the like they were all like captured somewhere. And when we got to the cheese whiz, it would be like <laughs> revealed um, or to the final boss. And then, yeah, it just wasn't. We murdered them. Um, that would be too, the, too nice. <laughs> yeah, right. And then, but then at the end of the adventure as well, I know that you, um, well, we had to either allow the town to fall into ruin mm-hmm. or we all had to make a pact with the cheese demon to like stay worthy of, of, of his powers and, and maintain prosperity within the town. Yeah. And take over the lit cottage cheese, which was the, or the, um, factory. And that's what we decided to do at the end, which just allows um, for another adventure um, to happen. Stilton um, almost did not. He almost ran. Yeah, He's like, I'm not from here. <laughs> yeah. But he eventually he was just like, ah, sure. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all going to get rich doing this if we appease the demon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get a dope. As the occultist, I know there were a lot of really occulty, weird stuff down in my grandpa's like man cave. So I was like, fuck yeah. And even when we were, when we were like, we all knew it was the grandfather. And then I think at yeah. one point Stilton was even like, so we're going to murder. And I was like, boom, like fondue <laughs> bolt. Yep. Fuck this guy. We're out. Like, I I get, yeah. I get all this stuff. I'm in. Um, yeah. We, I remember we took like a beat and somebody was like, so you're, you're cool after, uh, completely destroying your grandfather. <laughs> Like, yeah. yeah let's do this like, sure hell yeah you know alistair crowley like let's just it's all occult you know life is life do what thou wilt yeah. um yeah you know fuck around and mm-hmm. find out i guess grandpa um <laughs> and uh the cheese demon was not uh was not down i definitely as that character would have been way more into appeasing a cheese demon than dealing with my cheese with grandfather so Yep, now I just got a yeah. sweet man cave and lay cottage cheese. Um, you do. What, what are the odds of you running another cheese adventure? Uh, I mean, I think as far as the, the group high. is concerned. Yeah. Yes. As far as the group's <laughs> concerned, I think everybody's, we have a plan for everyone to kind of run a game um, and then just kind of cycle through that again. So obviously I run games already. I'm a DM. Um Jason does as well. Andy was running a campaign. Life happens. Um, but we do have a one shot lined up um, with him planning to run that. Um, you've run one. Matt has one in the works. And we're going to start a community challenge soon for Eric to run one. And then that will have been everybody. And we'll have to start back at the top. So maybe sometime, you know, like middle, like early to middle next year, you know, maybe we'll see cheese two. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we might see the fondue 
Jeez, so many people have come up with like super clever names. So I feel like I have to. Yeah. No, I, um, I feel like you have to too. I won't. I won't make you this time. But if yeah, you're willing, you will. <laughs> I listen. I can't make you do anything that you don't want to do. Um, did you Did you have fun doing it? Are you glad that you ran cheese? Yeah, it was really fun. I was super stressed out for a long time, but. I'm glad I did it. And uh, now I have a lot of things made, like I wouldn't change the character sheets. So it'd be a lot less work, but for a one shot, I did put like so much work into it, especially like I didn't come up with the rule set, but everything else was hand done. So that was, that was a lot. So yeah, I, I should probably use everything that I made again at some point. Yeah. Well, again, you, as we talked about earlier, the production value of everything was absolutely insane. Um, so if we could get like a cheese, a once a year cheese or every six months <laughs> cheese adventure, wait, you know, wait. before we start our weekly cheese campaign, um, oh, God. I think we have, we have a lot of stuff to do. I think everyone that played it like absolutely loved it. I think everyone that watched it was super obsessed with it. We have some awesome cheese merch. You still need to get me that color corrected cheese. Oh yeah, so I, I know. Put I'm it sorry. On, a, on a baseball tee. But I'll drop our merch link in there if anyone wants the uh, the cheese stuff. I really want to get a nice a nice cheese shirt. Um, Me too. But yeah, it was it was so much fun, and like I said, I think everyone that watched it was just like, "Holy shit, this is so weird and awesome." Um, <laughs> that so. was the goal. Yeah, I wanted yeah. it to be weird and awesome. Yeah. So maybe potentially going forward, um, we'll package that up and and allow you know people to to snag that so you can run cheese for yourself um it's definitely worth yeah. it definitely fun um but as far as as far as gming a game and everything that came with it i know that you took again an, an added crazy level of stress for the amount of stuff that you did all the social media posts all the videos like the layout everything like that but just like writing the adventure making the maps running the game kind of like the standards of gm stuff how how did you feel about all of that going from being a player who has mostly run. I think uh, you've you've played five E more than pretty much anything. I know we did a little bit of casket lands and stuff like that. Um, but as far as as playing five E versus GMing your own adventure, how did you feel about all of that? Um, I mean, it gave me kind of a new respect for what you guys have to juggle all the time. Um, I like I knew it wasn't easy, but yeah it's definitely it's definitely a lot harder than just like sitting and playing your part when your name is called <laughs> but um uh, yeah i mean it helps that you had made the the rule set and that jason pretty much like streamed it he run he ran the stream while i ran the game which was really helpful um but there's still so much to, to keep in line. Like I kept messing up and not like having the music for each room play. Cause I like handpicked music for each room and not just like each room, but like the room. And then if there was a, a fight in that room, then there'd be a battle music for that room. And I kept like <laughs> just fumbling that and not showing like images of the rooms because there's just so much to, to keep in line, but I think I would do better next time now that I've done it once. Like I, I, I learned some things. Um, 
but yeah, it was, it was fun. I think once I got into it, once like the initial nerves faded away, it was, it was a good time. You know, especially if you use Roll20 in the future, that's one thing that as a GM, um, especially early on, um, I've talked to a lot of people, especially when we used to do some like GM, like intro stuff is just like how to balance a lot of it. Um, and a lot of it is, it's kind of what we try to do with you is just, um, take some of it off your shoulders. So like Jason running the stream, Mm -hmm. because I mean, and Jason runs the stream for me on, on dark kingdoms on Wednesdays. Um, I know Andy was running his own on Mondays doing the stream and the game and stuff like that. And it's just too much. It's a, it's a whole lot. And I can't, I can't, Mm -hmm. you know, I won't be able to thank Jason enough for for running it every week setting up the zoom every week you know doing the transitions and all of it it's just so incredibly helpful because um streaming games is a lot different than running games in person um some parts better sometimes worse um but having to run the stream is just a stress i think above and beyond um gming which is a pain in the ass so that's really really helpful that he does that um I know the way that I uh, kind of control a lot of things. Eventually, I'll show you guys a map of the way that I do preps for my stuff. But the GM layer, if you actually look at it, it's just like pure text for me. Like <laughs> it's giant letters. It's like turn on music and like don't forget this. And like the images are like already on the screen, just mm-hmm. waiting to be brought to the new layer. So that's what I found really helpful. So if that's something that you could, you struggled with with the music, you could literally write in the middle of the room, turn on music track, and right next to the monster, you could be like, turn on battle mm-hmm. music in every room with like yeah. lines going to places. And, and it really helps because I won't, I don't, I won't remember. My, my memory is, is going like crazy. So I have to like write actually on the layer, you know, reminders myself and preps and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I didn't so even know you helpful. could do that. Like, I learned how to use Roll20 like two days before the game. So. You should have just messaged me. I said that I would help with anything. And Jason will no, just use I, boundary, but. I mean, yeah, he well, he's used Roll20 before, so he kind of yeah. showed me like the basics, and I kind of just figured out what I needed to figure out. Um, except for a monster token, I did not make monster tokens. I threw one of those in there for you. Yeah, Ryan a made guy. a monster token like mid-game and and discorded it to me so i was able to use that but yeah i i missed a few things but and i did not pay attention to the chat at all i feel really bad because you know all all the supporters out there were really really going ham in the chat <laughs> i rewatched it and just looked at the chat because it was pretty funny um but yeah i so that's something i would like to next time try to do better is pay closer attention to the chat yeah you know i mean and that's uh, in the list of important things especially when you're running games in your early games i think the twitch chat is one of the lesser important things especially considering you have other players i can do that because i know when i'm dming um you're pretty active in the chat um when we're when we're running (laughs) the games and things um so that's that's one of those things i'm always rolling for dumb shit there you go. Well, as as do I, especially in Markboard. But um, uh, you know that's we love chat and we love having chat here. But it's not like you would have chat in a home game, running it at your table. That's another one of those things that mm-hmm. streaming games is a little bit different. Is is chat? Um, but it's it's just practice. We'll just have to have you run a bunch of games, and eventually you'll have it all. You'll have it all set up and ready to go. 
Um, Do you guys see what he's done during this? He's gone from like, so I'm not going to force you to play one game, but maybe you could play a game. And then it soon became like a monthly game and a weekly game. You're going to play, you're going to be DMing a bunch of games. This is, this is how Ryan works. This is how he like pressures you into things. Listen, you can, you can choose what you want to do, whatever you want to do. Yeah. The illusion of freedom. The illusion of freedom. Listen, this is just being a DM. You know what I mean? Like, this is just making the players think that they choose where they they're go making choices. Reality. Yeah, it's it's the illusion. They're of on choice. a railroad track. Yeah. There you go. No, no, I don't think I. Do. No, I know. Um, you don't. But um, but it's also fun just as as you know someone who's DM'd you a lot to actually see you DM as well um, because um, a number of your characters are a little bit more reserved um, mm-hmm. when you play. So what was really cool as a to watch you GM is to have to be um, super invested and active the entire time, which is like a, a cool <laughs> thing. And how do you how do you feel like about that just in general, like your play style versus your DM style and like the differences in, in that? I know I think you touched on a little bit, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely more passive as a player. Um, I think probably partly because a lot of <laughs> people that we play with personalities are just like they're more charismatic than me like I'm much more of like a an introvert (laughs) and so I tend to play like introverts because I'm not good at role playing (laughs) no I'm okay at it um but yeah I just I end up being quiet but when when I'm dming I have to not be quiet like I have I have to run the game and so uh I think my personality came out a little bit more because I was forced to talk (laughs) but uh yeah having never dm'd like I've watched Critical Role and watched you and watched Jason and watched uh other people dm and played in games and I think during all of that i've just kind of been passively collecting styles of dming and things that dms do and uh that all kind of just came out once we got into the game i i don't know if i have a style maybe somebody could break that down but i tried to be i tried to go around like the order of people and not neglect anyone i tried to um give you guys freedom to do things even if i like hadn't necessarily prepared for it like at one point i think eric wanted to pick a lock and i definitely did not want him to open that door but i still let him try to pick the lock um and he failed miserably luckily because then i would have had to like think on my feet but um yeah, I just tried to like collect little things or think of things that I've uh, that I've thought about while playing games and like what I like in a DM GM and what I don't like as much and just tried to use all that information for my personal style. Yeah, and again, you did a great job. Like I would not have... I would not have thought that that's the first game that you ever jammed. Um, Thank you. You did a really good job. And I know the system, the system is 
can be simple and complicated, like Powered by the Apocalypse in general, because the rolling is, is pretty straightforward, and it, but it also, having the players have that much freedom to do whatever they want really mm-hmm. puts an impetus on the GM to make stuff up. So when those mixed yeah. successes, I think, are one of the harder things to do in Powered by the Apocalypse, it's like, how can I have them succeed and then also immediately come up with a consequence? Um, and I think you did a really good job with with that and the system in general, just that powered by the apocalypse two D six mixed success system. Um, so, like I said, I would not have, you know, other than the fact that I've known you for like three years, um, would not have guessed that that was the first time you'd ever run a game. I think you did a really, really good job with the improv and and keeping everything going. And like you said, like making sure that the spotlight was spread across people and and everything like that. Um, and I think the way that you wrote the adventure was was just really well done. It was a really well written one shot as far as like an arc to the story, a twist at the end, everything felt like it had a purpose, nothing felt superfluous or anything like that. Um, and it definitely had like a nice line through the whole thing. Um, so from writing the adventure to running the adventure, I think, I don't think anyone was like, oh my gosh, we were surprised. We thought Jess would suck. But I think a lot of people were just like, <laughs> like she just didn't like, like just run the adventures. Like she did a really, really good job running the adventure. And I think a lot of people were like that was the kind of mindset across everyone was just like wow like we have to do this again um next month yeah, or next week i was just like a little yeah just a just little, little nudge but yeah, yeah do you think that um do you think that gming do you think that if you were to gm more and stuff like that do you think that that would affect your play style when you're just playing or do you think that it would just be like two different kind of personalities because i know i know. I, I have a struggle yeah, maybe. with yeah, I have a struggle with uh, backseat DMing or taking <laughs> taking lead too often. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I've created characters in the past. Like, when I run 5e games, I have this character named Charity. And I specifically made her as, like, a shy, quiet character who really only, like, acts and talks when she's addressed. So that I'm not just constantly bogarting like everything or pushing the action or doing things that i have to actually make a character like that to not do that um (laughs) or like just as a dm who's run a lot of adventures and seen a lot of adventures can kind of see things coming but don't always want to be the one that's like aha i see this like um so yeah do you think that dming would would change your play style at all um yeah, I mean, possibly. Yeah. It's hard to know because I've been playing Dariana for so long. And that's like the one character that I am consistently playing and am probably in too much of a like a pattern with her to break at this point, <laughs> even if I was DMing a lot to like change her personality. I feel like I get into just like this is how I played Ariana when I play her. So maybe if we played a different game, maybe it would um, influence me to kind of like break out of my comfort zone a little bit more just because I, I don't know, getting used to talking in front of like a, not just like us, but in front of a chat, like that's a, that's a different thing too. So yeah, maybe getting used to that more would help me be more more of a vocal character. So do you um, think there's a big difference from when but we But probably went, not with Dariana. 
Gotcha. Do you think there was a big difference when we went from like the home games, like in my apartment to, to streaming online? Did you feel like a, a difference? The fact that there's people watching and there's a chat and everything? Uh, yeah, I think, well, I mean, it's pretty much the same essence. Like we're the same people and we're goofy and stupid a lot of the time. Uh, but yeah, it definitely took like a second to get used to in the beginning. And then, you know, just knowing that people are watching um, as like another element of kind of like, not stress, but kind of, I don't know. There's like a, a slight like live television vibe, even though like it's not, we don't have like a million people watching. It's like, it's a much bigger room now. <laughs> and so, yeah, you are a little bit more aware of like what you're saying, I guess, than like if you're just hanging out in a room full of people. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I definitely felt that when we first started jamming, I had that kind of what you talked about. Um, excuse me. When you first uh, like getting past those nerves initially, I think the first bunch of sessions, I kind of had that like, all right, give me a second. Let me, let me, you know, we're, there's people beyond us that are watching this stuff now. Um, they can mm -hmm. critique my performance. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, and I think everyone, every GM is always going to feel like, like, and maybe, 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 maybe not. Um, but I, I've known a lot of people that talked about, like, you always remember the mistakes you made in a game um, versus, like, the, the, the things that went well, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think early on, especially GMing, I had that a lot more. Now it's just like... I think I'm a pretty good GM and I have fun doing what I'm doing. So it doesn't bother me as much. But if I miss something big, it bothers me. Like um, if I, I remember there was a part a while back with Beatum where he got in a battle with one of his, um, with one of his, when he, when he, when they had their child and he had to disappear and I had that guy attack and kidnap him. Um, mm -hmm. There was this whole thing where he got this scroll and he cast the scroll, but the scroll disappeared. It actually cursed him. And for like half the battle versus the guy, I totally forgot to have the curse effect in effect. And I was like, God damn it. You know, that, that really mm -hmm. bugged me. Um, so you definitely remember the mistakes, but I think that goes away. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's just part of GMing and, and everything like that. Um, yeah. And as, as far as playing, you know, I know that we've done Dark Kingdoms for over two years now. I think that beginning of September was two years of running that game. And we've run some other games. Um, as uh, as a player, not as a DM now, I know you play Daryana. I know we just talked about her. Um, over the course of, well, I guess you weren't there in the very beginning. I think you came on, I don't even remember when you came on, what session you came in. I think it was maybe, I think maybe you've been in for about a year and a half now in this. Um, mm -hmm. How do you feel about like Daryana and the campaign? Like you're not not like the Dark Kingdoms necessarily, but like your character growth and things like that. Do you feel like as a player um, that that's something that you like are looking for or striving for, or do you feel like more reactive with the world? Um, I know you have a, a an arc going right now, and that has to do with your family history and this book that was stolen and everything like that. And I think yeah, um, recently you kind of got a little bit of a a little bit of a clue towards some of that. Um, but how do you feel about your character, your character growth, and and as opposed to doing like a one shot, having this like long campaign arc, we've had to be this character for close to probably what forty five, fifty sessions. Mm -hmm. Um. 
Yeah. I mean, I like the opportunity to have some character growth. I don't know how much she's grown. That's kind of my own fault. Um, but I, I have enjoyed the, um, this arc that you made where her, her book has gotten stolen and that kind of has intensified her relationship with Brian, Bri Bri, her blood familiar, because, you know, her two most important things were Brian and this book, and then this book got stolen. And so she's kind of focused more on protecting Brian and making this relationship with him and maybe nobody else like realizes that that's like what's happening but that was kind of my like thought process behind it is that she's become more dependent on Brian as being this like emotional support blood elemental uh because this book that she cares so much about is gone um and then there was that whole like master of visions thing where she had to choose between Brian and the book. And that was like really hard for her. Um, but she did what she did and she feels a little guilty about it. But now that she's, she's on the trail kind of, of where to finding her book, like she has, she's been given a tip as to where it is. And that's pretty close. She's kind of itching to go maybe find it, but she might be outmatched by who has it. And so I don't know. It's, yeah, that's been fun. And I'm excited to see where that goes. Um, and I know you've, you have this kind of like, I mean, you kind of have control over what happens to Brian sometimes. And I'm really scared of that. I don't, I've gotten attached to Brian and I don't want him to die and neither yeah, does Dariana really, and he's tired. Really, he's almost died a few times. A couple of times. You were really close last session. Um, probably closer than you think, uh, yeah. to, to him just accidentally dying. Um, I know. uh, and I don't, I, I'd be interesting to see how Dariana reacts to that. I know you talked about the Master of Visions thing a little bit. Um, there was a part where all of the characters, um, and spoiler alerts for anyone in the campaign that hasn't heard this, turn it off for a second. There was a part where you had to go find this Master of Visions and he was going to guide you towards um, uh, the pieces needed for this ritual you guys are trying to stop. And you eventually find out that it's Archduke Avgos. That's what you're looking for. Um, but everyone has these visions and in those visions... Um, it was kind of a, I, I really enjoyed that. Actually, I think the Master of Visions session was our very first session on stream. Um, it was like episode 31 mm -hmm. or episode one on the stream was when you guys had these visions. Um, and in your vision, you found the person who stole your book. Um, and the person said, I can give you the book back, but you have to choose. And I think she said, here is basically this powder which is very similar to the powder that you used on your sister to kill her um, when you hemolyzed um, part of a blood ritual. Um, and it was basically, I'll give you the book, but you need to pour this on Brian and kill him. Um, and at the end of each of those visions, it was kind of like a little mini um, skill challenge. You had to succeed at something. Um, and Brian was actually like backing away from you, all scared of you. 
and you had to succeed in like a persuasion role to have him like come back to you so you could kill him. Um, yeah. And you chose at that time to kill Brian um, so you could get your book back. Um, and that was, you know, 30 sessions ago, 30 plus sessions ago at this point. We're talking more than a year. We're talking a year on stream. We've hit a year now. Mm -hmm. um, a year later and everything that you've gone through with Brian since then and the support that he is to you now, if you had to make that choice again, what what would you do? Would you, you know? Uh, and would that uh, choice be different prior to that little tip you just got? Like if I asked you the same question like two weeks ago and mm -hmm. your book was just gone with no real knowledge of where it was versus now where maybe it's in your grasp, do you think regardless you would be going for the book? That's so hard because, yeah, she got got this tip about the book, and so she's kind of like her. It's like in the back of her mind, not in the back of her mind. It's like more in the forefront now. It's kind of just like always there, kind of an obsession of hers. Like oh, maybe we should we should probably go try to get my book. But if she had to choose between the book and Brian at this point, that would be really tough, just because of he's been the support system for her during this whole time that she hasn't had the book. So, I mean, she definitely tried to get away with both, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if it came down to like a choice. I'd probably just have to make the choice like in that moment. I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. You, uh, what you really need to do is try to find like a, like a, some type of new spell that you can cast where you can cast like, comprehend languages or something and actually be able to talk to brian more because i think the only <laughs> one in the party that can actually talk to brian i think is beat him um mm -hmm. i think he either speaks primordial or has a spell that allows him to but i know you've you've got to talk to him um and he's pretty much just like love you mom i like blood um that's about the extent of his he is really you know like uh not the most intelligent of emotional support beings that you could have but uh but he's up there um yeah, it's kind of like, you know, a dog or a cat. <laughs> yeah. Still um, support, but not you can't have like a good conversation. <laughs> right, right. You can just murder for you and dispose of bodies and Yeah, like and a good that dog. really needs. Yeah, exactly. Um So yeah. So <laughs> that's But please that's don't cheese. kill Brian. Listen, I, 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 I'll say I will, I, unless the story beat would be really great, I oh, will God. not intentionally kill Brian. Um, but if Brian happens to, to, to roll the wrong direction and run into a, a pond of water, um, yeah. you know, he's only got so many chances before fate decides, you know. That would just yeah. be a really shitty way to go if it was just like he accidentally got confused and ran into water. Like I, I would definitely make sure it's much more emotionally impactful than that. Okay. So I have made I have made people cry on stream from losing their loved ones and stuff, and I guess that's like that's now that's that's the high I'm chasing at this point. You gotta oh, chase God. the dragon now. You know what I mean? Great. Um. So and for those uh, listening, um, we we're talking about the Dark Kingdoms campaign that we run on Wednesdays. It is an evil campaign set in Cobalt Press's Midgard world that we've now been running for over two years and on stream for about a year now. Um, we've actually run more sessions on stream than off stream, um, but that's what we're talking about. And Jess is uh, Dargana Bloodrite, an elf marked Seraphage sorceress, as I said before, 
Um, she she just really loves blood. Just big fan. Mm-hmm. Likes playing in it. Um, yep. It's kind of a thing. So so yeah. So um, so tune in. You know, <laughs> as we start the cheese campaign, we'll get up and running. Oh, gosh. Year. Yeah, we'll start the weekly Monday cheese game. Um, no, but no. in all honesty, in all honesty, um, I think it would be great to, to see another one, um, at no pressure when we decide to, you know, if you're down for that, we can do another community challenge, give you plenty of time to prep for it, you know, look in, you know, next year sometime if you do want to do like fondue or like whatever you want to have for a second time. <laughs> I think part of it, like you said, you've, you put so much work into, the all of the lead up all the videos the layout everything like that it would be a shame not to be able to see that again and use that again and i think the story was left open enough to to really be able would you would you um i know this is really far out if you decide to run another one would you want to run like same character same extension of the story or would you run another adventure in like the cheese universe that's really tough uh for for the amount of work i i feel like i'd rather <laughs> just run the same characters so i don't have to make new character sheets but i don't know we'll see like i guess once i start thinking about um if it would end up being a better story to continue where you guys left off or a better story to do something completely different because currently this is like my first album and it was a hit and I put like my whole life into it and then like I'm gonna start my second album and have like nothing nothing left to put into it. it's gonna fail miserably and that's how I'm you're looking at it <laughs> sophomore slump you're gonna have yeah. uh yeah yeah so um, I don't know we'll see <laughs> whatever no, I, I feel like makes a better story I guess I, I definitely can't imagine that again I was and the nice, I don't even know how to say this without sounding bad. I was, I knew you were going to do a really good job. I was I just, shocked. <laughs> I was shocked. No, but for real though, I knew you were going to do a really good job. And as I said, the production values are great. But Did like you? you <laughs> yeah. Well, especially when she started sending me all the videos and stuff like that. I'm like, there's no way okay. this is gonna, so she's going to make all this look gorgeous and it's just going to suck. Um, well, but you definitely I've... exceeded, exceeded my expectations. Like I knew you were going to do a good job, but I think you did a fantastic job. Again, the story was really well written the maps were gorgeous like the um i know you said you forgot some things and stuff running through the adventure but most of them were not really noticeable at all um as far as like from a player perspective so just from from writing the adventure to how the adventure looked to to actually running the adventure itself i just think you did a really really good job the adventure itself was like that might be my favorite part of all of it is just so well written and that twist at the end was so like oh shit and to have like an oh shit moment in campaign is something that like sticks with you i think those are the moments because like we've been running dark kingdoms for for two years and there's like three or four moments there's a there's like three quarters of it that i've probably forgotten and have to be reminded of it and then there's three or four moments where you go oh shit that was so cool and i think in yours getting that oh shit moment in like the first game that you ran was just was just really cool and it was cool to see as someone who's watched you as a player for you know two to three years um and then having again kind of making you run an adventure um (laughs) and then you just crushing it it was it was it was fun it was really cool you did a really really good job so thank you yeah it was fun to make it was stressful a little fun
again, you took a lot of that stress with with the production stuff, but you had the skills to do it and and did really well with the production value. So, um, again, if no one, if you have not watched it, check out our YouTube. Um, check out our Instagram. Um, look at our website. Um, YouTube is youtube.com slash the adventure archive. Our website is theadventurearchive.net. Um, you can look at all of the um, breakdowns um, or, or summaries for a lot of the adventures that we run. You can uh, link to our YouTube from there for the, the cheese video. You can check out our merch store, which you can find through our Twitch channel. Um, and we are twitch.tv slash the adventure archive. We're pretty much the adventure archive across the board. Um, but we do have a link tree. Um, do we have a link tree? I know we do. I don't remember what it is. I think it's just linktree, linktr.ee slash the adventure archive. Um, so check out, yeah, there it is. Um, so check out all of those things. Um, and definitely check out cheese. Um, as we've just been talking about, it was a wonderful, great, um, adventure. It was very interesting. It's very, great. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, uh, definitely watch that. Um, it's a really great time. You'll have a lot of fun with it. Um, and we only ran it for, it, I think it was only like three hours, three and a half hours. So it definitely fits into the one shot. Yeah. Yeah, so, I definitely, yeah. I tried to keep it within that time period as best as I could. Yeah. And that's another thing that's really hard about one shots, especially not running one before, not knowing the system, not knowing anything. Um, you know, knowing or being able to to cut it at that like three and a half hour mark. I think we usually stop at 10, 10 to ten thirty, and you, we mm -hmm. stop right at ten thirty. So just again, all around great job. Um, so yeah, so that is this is Jess, um, the the cheese meister, cheese mistress herself, um, <laughs> our blood sorceress, everything. Um, you can find her on Wednesdays on our Dark Kingdoms campaign as the blood sorceress. Um, Thursdays, um, when most of our Thursday games, I think you're pretty much going to be a, 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 a regular figure in our Thursday night games, whoever's running them. Um, we do run just, uh, tabletop role playing Thursdays, basically our Thursday night games are, are our non D and D adventures. Um, and Jess is pretty much a staple on those. So you can see her Wednesdays and Thursdays every week here on the adventure archive. Um, and maybe at some point in the future, if we do get a cheese part two, we can bring, Jess on once again to the weekly scroll um and we can talk about the first adventure versus the second adventure and see how that goes but um thank you oh, horribly here. the second adventure bombs that's no, what we'll talk no. about i again well, uh, as well as you did on the first i can't imagine the second not being great so um so thank you so much for being here i really appreciate it i appreciate you getting up yeah. a little bit early on a saturday um that was a lot of fun um <laughs> so so yeah yeah it's fun talking Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, and for everyone out the podcast, um, check out our Twitch and YouTube as well. So we will talk to you later. Bye, everybody. Bye.